Welcome to Kurt Vonnegut's, the podcast dedicated to the life and works and ongoing things of Kurt Vonnegut, because he's the greatest author of all time. My name is Alex Schmidt, and I'm joined as always by my co-host, Michael Swaim. <coughs> We've lost him. So I'm a little under the weather, but I got my orange juice sippy cup, and nothing yeah. can stop me from talking. Yeah. Kurt! We're just too excited to get into Womp Eaters, FOMA, and Grand Falloons. We're thrilled! It's the first <laughs> Kurt Vonnegut essay collection we've talked about, and it's got all kinds of other stuff in it, too. I think we should go ahead and get into a first segment called Story Time. That's faster than I was prepared for. I told you I was ill. Cut me some slack, man. This segment is not chill. <laughs> I like that we did totally two totally different intros. Two totally, I like that you're oh. stuck going doodly doodly and you uh, can't stop. I have we already to- fallen to pieces. We diddly did two doodly diddly diddly <laughs> different intros. <laughs> Flanders is here. What segment welcome is this? To, welcome to Tug Twister Cast. Uh, this is the show. The Human Torch was denied <laughs> a diddly bank loan. So this is a, a segment a lot like plot time, but since this oh. is so many different stories and essays and et cetera, we're going to go What'd through all the it? different... Essay oh, time? Story time. Story time. Actually, it would, probably would have made more sense as essay time. In hindsight. <laughs> <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> I'm really not put together today. But you know who is put together? Kurt Vonnegut. Because this is a collection of... Lots of his essays from a long period of time, starting from 1965 and going out to 1974. And so he does a big, long preface, as he's wont to do. But from there, gets into all sorts of different essays and other detritus from his writing life. Yeah. We usually make a tradition of talking about what's before the title page or like before the body of the book. Yeah. This time, it's uh, an attribution. The book is For Jill, Who Cronkled Me. Yeah. And dumb me, I like take everything as just a word for love, so I assume that's his wife or whatever. But it's not. <laughs> it, Jill is in reference to, Alex is going to help me out, but someone who did a, a, a biography work on him named Jill. Cronkle, all I know is Cronkle's short for chronicled. He actually, so it's his second wife. But it not, is a wife. They're not married so yet both. Okay. at this time. Yeah, he. Uh, they put this out in 1974, and he... Before that, had divorced his first wife, Jane, and had been living in New York. Kurt worked on a play called Happy Birthday, Wanda June, and a photographer named Jill Kremitz came to take photographs of the production, and they kind of fell for each other. And they I started see. living together in Manhattan and then would get married in, I believe, 1979. So this is a getting into your pants dedication still at this phase. <laughs> He's wooing her. Still making moves. But chronicled in the preface, he says, means like cross between chronicled and then something more. Yeah. Something indefinable. So she like she did kind of do a biography of his play in mm-hmm. photographic media. He, did she take the photos that are in my copy of Happy Birthday Wanda June probably? I'm pretty sure she did. There yeah. you go. Yeah, yeah. And then there's a quote, an epigram, I think they're called. Yeah. Mm. Remember Teddy Grams? It says, uh, it's Henry <laughs> David Thoreau, and it says, I have traveled extensively in Concord. Yeah. What do you think that means, Alex? <laughs> I, well, it's, I looked, I think it, <laughs> I'm Sorry. just Ray Romano for the rest yeah. of the show. I think it's an attempt to express that we're going through all sorts of different directions and aspects and regions and parts of just one guy's really limited perspective on a few things. Yeah, because you, know? you told us last time that this is sort of, this collection was not put together by him or even ordered by him, right? Yeah. But, so he, this... but he like, he gives it his blessing, but. It's a really weird thing where there were two professors, a guy named Jerome Klinkowitz and a guy named John Sommer, 
and they had become scholars of Kurt Vonnegut and were some of the first people to do that. And they put out a piece called The Vonnegut Statement in 1973, which was like an essay collection about all sorts of different things they wanted to get at about his work. And then they reached out to Kurt's publisher and said, hey, in our research for this, we've just kind of tracked down everything Kurt ever wrote for any magazine ever. And a lot of it's unpublished. Why don't you make that a collection? And then Kurt and his editor kind of looked at what was there. And Kurt wrote one or two more things for magazines. And then they just kind of made this collection out of it and got a bestseller out of it without really intending to make something like this in the first place. Although he does say in the preface they didn't find everything. He's like, yeah. much like Kilgore Trout, there's still short <laughs> stories in crappy magazines that you didn't find that I will never tell you where they are because they suck and I don't want them to be collected. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so I love the idea that you could still someday maybe find an undiscovered. Like imagine reading a magazine you found in a dumpster yeah. and it has a Kilgore Trout story that you realize you've never seen before in any Vonnegut work. Oh, that would be You'd amazing. lose your shit. Right, freak out. <laughs> yeah. That's why I dive through dumpsters to this day. Exactly. Man. Oh, hunt. finally, I can put a reason to that. <laughs> it doesn't make me so sad anymore. <laughs> My smells and mess makes <laughs> yeah. sense. Well, he also, in his later letters, Kurt wrote to his longtime attorney, Don Farber, in 1980 and said, quote, since the publication of Wampers, Foma, and Grand Falloons, I have been sending a copy of every speech and article to Sam, my publisher, on the theory that he would be publishing another nonfiction collection by and by. Gotcha. And so after this collection came, Kurt realized, oh, I should keep monetizing this stuff and of keep course. like archiving it. And that's how Palm Sunday came about, which is another collection. So he, I think he did his best after this to try to grab stuff, but there's definitely got to be still stuff sure. that just nobody's found. You know. And I will say, uh, as someone who loves fiction and has a tough time with nonfiction, I was worried I wouldn't like it, but I loved it. It was, it was still good. Yeah. Yeah, yeah the really essays worked. are great. They're very yeah. worth reading and short, so like... I don't know if you're like me and long nonfiction is hard. They're not long and they're still very fanciful because everything he attacks, even real life stuff, he does the Vonnegut tirades that you want. Yeah. And especially because it, it's also a mix of essays and speeches that are written yeah. down and, and it's... And interviews. And interviews. And yeah. interview, I suppose. <laughs> All right. Yeah. And we're also, I don't know if you've heard our Welcome to the Monkey House episode, but we're planning on doing kind of a move from thing to thing approach for this segment oh. with a little bit of a next, you know, and whoosh and so on and really, uh, really keep that momentum up. Are we going to tr- use the whoosh system like we used? I think so. All right. Yeah. <laughs> we're going to start with the first chunk of it, the preface. That's fun. It's not a, I would say like where it's from, but it's not from any, it's from this collection. And yep. Kurt talks about the definitions of the words wampiters, foma, and grand faloons, which are all from Cat's Cradle. A wampiter is... I had a tab this <gasps> stuff. But you don't know what a wampiter is? Get out! <sighs> I believe it's the central item that a yes, harass is. is organized around. Yes. And then a foma is a harmless untruth that helps people live. And then a grand faloon is a large group that doesn't have any harass actual meaning behind it. It's and then a group it, that's sort of self-organized like Hoosiers. Under the title in parentheses, it says opinions, which I think is great because it made me realize all three of those words are different descriptions of just opinions in different ways, which yeah. I never realized. Yeah. Like a wampeter, a dominant opinion, let's say being pro-choice or pro-life, can form a group around itself. FOMA, any untruth or like thing you believe purely on faith is like the definition of an opinion. Yeah. And grand floon... You get it. But like, that was really cool to me. And uh, of course, it's fitting because that's basically all we're getting is opinions. And in the preface, he definitely spells out 
how much in this time period he's influenced by the new journalism movement. And if you didn't take uh, a new journalism class like I did at UCSD, you might not know. It's kind of synonymous with gonzo journalism, which is what Hunter S. Thompson practiced. But basically, it's the idea that was coming about in this time. Kurt was living through it. And I think you can tell in this book he was very impressed and influenced by this movement. It's the idea of covering something journalistically but including yourself as the narrator in a fictive way, meaning you don't make stuff up, but it's a belief that like it's more honest to be honest about what your bias and opinion is. So instead of, let's say, MSNBC, let's say a liberal-leaning reporter at MSNBC, going to a Trump rally and just trying to stay very dry and uh, detached, this yeah. is the idea of like your Hunter S. Thompson down at the Trump rally yeah. being like, shivers go throw my body as these damn vultures spout their nonsense <laughs> but like for if you're interested here's the facts that they gave it this is their platform yeah and it's sort of the belief that at least you're being honest and transparent so if someone doesn't like your opinion they know what your opinion is and they can be like oh i don't agree with you i'm not going to listen to you right and it's kind of more honest than trying to remain transparent yeah yeah and it's Kurt describes it as like a limited form of fiction, essentially. Like it's it's really you're writing everything realistically and what actually happened, but you're writing it from your own perspective, which is what a lot of fiction is. It's just something from somebody's perspective. Yeah. And he says in the preface and several times in the book that he thinks fiction gets at truth more directly than nonfiction. Yeah. Which is interesting because then later <laughs> in the interview he says in fiction, I don't know if I've ever said anything original. When I have something new to say, I lay it out in an essay. Yeah. So he contradicts then, himself throughout the book, which is okay because he says he's full of shit. In the yeah, there's also. another part where he says, everything I say is horse shit. So, yeah. uh, it's great. In, in this preface, he also talks about his paid speaking that he started to do, in particular once his novels really took off. And he talks about the influence of that on how he wrote and what he did. And he said it was starting to become a distraction from writing. And so he was going to yeah. focus more on just writing because you you don't get any applause when you're doing a novel. So it's a lot harder. And uh, just to place this in his life, a lot of the essays come around the time he was thinking about Breakfast of Champions, or shortly after he published Breakfast of Champions, which, if you caught last episode, is a fucking downer. So he's also... Yeah. (laughs) He's going (laughs) through... The best downer. I think he's going through a tough time at this time in his life. And the preface also touches on some very big things that were going on at this time in American history, specifically Vietnam and the hippie movement and experimentation with drugs and free love. And sadly for me, and somewhat surprisingly in the preface, he sort of comes down on on the side of like, uh, well, the quote is, or I had hoped that maybe, oh, this drug thing, maybe that's the answer. I, I don't know. My generation didn't do all this drug experimentation. Maybe they're right. And then he ends up saying, although I think both the drug movement and the like Far East wisdom New Age movement have simply returned to American banality without any artifacts and with adventure stories stimulating only to themselves. Ooh. So like... Sick burn. He hasn't totally given up hope, maybe, that there's a better way to live, but he's pretty, doesn't think the hippie movement is the solution already yeah. at this time. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> he's already called it. Well, and, he, and he's also writing this around the time of Richard Nixon being the president and yeah. then running Vietnam and then leaving the presidency right after. Because the writing's from 65 to 74, and Nixon is president from 68 to 74 when he resigns. And there's a lot of anti-Nixon stuff yeah. in here. That's great. We'll get to it. <laughs> On to the next thing. Next one's simply called Science Fiction. Yeah. And this was published <laughs> in the New York Times Book Review in 1965. 
Um, yeah, home of the very famous quote we've referenced before about science fiction as a genre being a file cabinet, which is sometimes mistaken for a urinal by critics. Yeah, yeah. And then there's also a, there's a line right after it, which I like a lot and had forgotten where he says, the way a person gets into this drawer, apparently, is to notice technology, which I feel like yeah. is a really good burn on the idea of science fiction being stupid. Like, yeah. No, it's everything. <laughs> The column is a little bit of a behind the scenes about like what the lifestyle of a sci-fi writer was like, but it's mainly just the argument about or grousing about how sci-fi people who write sci-fi have been pigeonholed and he really doesn't see the difference between fiction and sci-fi, especially because yeah. time is so relative to him. And we know that like, yeah. he's someone who's able to take the long view. So he's like, well, Emily Bronte's work is sci-fi too someone reading in the year 200 BC. So what is, just because my thing includes technology and its impact on society, it's sci-fi now and to be forgotten. Although, on the other hand, he also goes into a little bit of an explanation of why a lot of sci-fi is crappily written. So he seems to like be like, the critics are right about that though. Well, yeah, he also, he does a lot of describing sci-fi as a social experience for the writers of it. It says that like, you know, the writing's hit or miss, but the community we've created around yeah. writing it is wonderful. And it's one of the best writing experiences you can have. But hit or miss specifically just because the way the system functioned at this time, sci-fi writers were sort of like cracked writers. Like, uh, <laughs> right. uh, we do have several layers of editing and like quality control for columns, but it's not like you're ruminating on an article, like a book or something. And sci-fi at this yeah. time was like that. You'd get paid by the word. And so people would just be like cranking out stories as fast as they could. And so he's explaining like a lot of these sci-fi authors, you fucking critics, <laughs> are better writers than you even think they are. But you're reading their first draft just immediately published in the magazine. Right. They just finished typing and sent Yeah. It so it's kind of like yeah. a defense of sci-fi. Like back off. It's good. Yeah. Yeah, it's an enjoyable essay, and it, yeah. but it's very particular to his time and genre and experience. Yeah, it shows his love of the genre and does mention, as an aside, that right after publishing Breakfast of Champions, a 12-year-old boy wrote him a letter and said, please don't kill yourself. <laughs> <laughs> so that wasn't yeah. I wasn't the only one with such a bleak interpretation. That's good. I think it's there, yeah. Yeah. Next, we've got another article called Brief Encounters on the Inland Waterway. This was mm-hmm. published in a magazine called Venture in 1966. And also this collection's pretty chronological. It shifts a little bit, but most everything's in the order of when it came out. I found this essay very uninteresting. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, only in that it fulfills our recurring character segment pretty nicely. Like, it really fills it out. <laughs> it's pretty much the whole thing. Yeah. This time. It's basically the story of the Marlin, the Kennedy's boat, which has appeared in, like, the Hyannisport story and I yeah. think some other places, being piloted by Frank Wirtanen from Who's Mother Night guy. and yeah. is also a real man. <laughs> a real man who was just a boat captain yeah. in Mother Night. This is and was a segment called Recurring Characters Update. Yeah, just throw a bunch of whooshes on either side of that, Brett, because we're whooshing right by recurring characters. I think they're the only ones. I think that's pretty much it. Yeah. But the story itself is just them lazily taking the boat from one place to another. It's uh, West Palm Beach. Sorry, from Hyannisport to West Palm Beach so that the Kennedys can fly there, presumably in vacation using their boat. Yeah, there's sort of a long series of man-made canals and stuff going along the east side of the U.S., and they just kind of take a boat on it. It's a travel journal, yeah. That's about it. And I think it got published because people were like, oh, the famous author Kurt Vonnegut was on a boat. Can you believe it? I guess it seems boring, and I agree with that, but I also wrote down that it would actually kind of make like a sweet 
movie, sweet oh. in the literal, like it could be a heartwarming if you were able to make it interesting. <laughs> it, and it was about the length of that. I don't know. Oh, like I, My Summer with Kurt. Like a cool a, movie. Yeah. yeah if yeah, you yeah. crammed in a bunch of his famous speeches from other books and just pretended he said them in passing to Frank Rattanen on this oh, boat. And yeah. you did like a My Dinner with Andre, but it's Kurt Vonnegut on a boat. Yeah, that would work. That would work as a That'd movie. Right. That's all. Yeah. Next. <laughs> Next, we've got an essay called Hello, Star Vega. This Hello. was published in Life magazine in 1966. And this was a review of a book called Intelligent Life in the Universe, co-written by I.S. Shlikovsky and oh, Carl don't Sagan. Chicken out. Carl Sagan and Yosef Shmuliovich Shklovsky. <laughs> Yosef Shmulevich Shklovsky. But, but I'm a chicken. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But I don't wanna. Uh, it reminded me a lot of the short story from Welcome to the Monkey House that's the letters between the Russian and the American dads. Yeah, well, because this book, it was written by a so, Russian scientist yeah. and Carl Sagan in the Cold War. Whoa. Yeah. What unity. It's, what a unity of the scientists. It's just a nonfiction version of him saying, look, an example of Russians and Americans working together, can't we all just get along? Very yeah. straightforward. Extremely, yeah. It's And it's almost not even reviewing the book. It's just reviewing where the Cold War's at. <laughs> and <laughs> isn't it nice that these people from opposite political sides don't care about politics and work together? Like, you guys should be more like that. Yeah. Read this book. It's good for yeah, that yeah. reason. That's all. Yeah. So there's a little bit of UFO stuff in the review, but that's just because that's what's in the book. Oh, yeah. They, yeah. Yeah, yeah. The book he's reviewing is about the likelihood or unlikelihood of aliens existing anywhere or having visited us or whatever. Yeah. Which is very interesting, but that's a whole nother podcast. <laughs> and, it's all, and he also like kind of writes it as if you already read the book and he doesn't really dive into it much. No. It's so like it's a like, three-page column. He just kind of mentions the idea and doesn't really dig into it. Let's yeah. whoosh this shit, dude. Next, we've got an article called Teaching the Unteachable. This was in the New York Times book review in 1967. It's about algebra, am I right? <laughs> Hi, I hate math. <laughs> Should have at least said calculus. <laughs> it's about Kurt teaching writing at the University oh. of Iowa and also elsewhere. And uh, writing is, uh, there's like a, a few pretty good lines in it, but uh, otherwise it's mostly about either the students being very difficult to teach anything to or other students he says were like so exciting to teach that it prevented him from doing his writing because he was like working with them all the time you know yeah and he talks about writing conferences as well as a <laughs> place to learn how to write i disagree with the thesis or i don't know i am a big believer in like the ten thousand hours practice anyone can improve obviously there's a range but like there's a high acceptable range of writing ability that is yeah. interesting to read if the person has anything to say about life. And as he says himself later in this book, most of his ideas were ideas he had by seventh grade because like the big ideas, if you're fairly intelligent, you encounter early in your life. <laughs> yeah. Like big ideas about death and, and the nature of the universe and stuff. So anyway, the basic thesis of this column is that you cannot teach writing it's just magical. Yeah. Writing conferences in schools are bullshit for middle-aged women who just want to like kill time. Yeah. And I disagree <laughs> pretty thoroughly. Maybe he couldn't teach writing because of whatever his personality. I don't know. I'm curious about that too. Like our, yeah. our only 
really our only uh, uh, narrator for how good Kurt Vonnegut was at teaching writing in classes is Kurt Vonnegut. Like, there's a few people who took his writing classes and became his friends and say he's yeah. great, but they're his friends, so, like, I don't know. It's probably... And he seems to blame the controller. Like, you know, your friend is bat- who fails at the video game and throws the controller Because <laughs> every time he talks about writing classes, he's like, I wasn't very successful at it. I blame the students. Yeah. <laughs> or, like, yeah, yeah. I just don't think writing can be taught. <laughs> there's, one, there's one line in this essay it's writing well is something god lets you do or declines to let you do and that's so like top down (laughs) like some of you just got it and some of you don't and i don't know it seems like a bad attitude for a a writing teacher to me you know i just think the limited progress we've made on the science of learning and stuff proves that wrong i just don't think it's true yeah yeah i'm aware that genetics can give you a facility for certain behaviors and limit like how good you'll get at other behaviors but it's a wide range like the human brain is very moldable (laughs) over time especially if you're young right right. yeah all right next we have a essay called (laughs) yes we have no nirvanas this was in esquire in 1968 are you aware of the song the titles in reference to uh I th- the song I think of with this is Sexy Sadie because it's the Beatles song about the Maharishi. Oh my gosh. Okay, no. All right. Well, Brett, we'll put a clip in here, please, of this. Oh, yes. We have no bananas. We have no bananas today. And I only know this song because of the Simpsons referencing it, but it's Yes, We Have No Bananas. Oh. Which is a <laughs> song about bananas. <laughs> All I know is Homer says, They have no bananas today. They have no bananas. And he like starts <laughs> crying. But I I know what it's like, reference. it's a famous song from the 70s. It was a hit or 60s yeah. or 50s. <laughs> probably before that. Yeah, yeah. yeah, probably right around this time, I'm going to yeah. guess. So okay. this is a, pa- a, that's a reference to that. Kurt being pop cultural. <laughs> yeah. I contributed. <laughs> this is an article about Kurt... And his wife at the time, Jane, and then his daughter, Edith, all uh, experiencing a visit and some training with the Maharishi, the famous teacher of uh, Transcendental Meditation, who taught the Beatles and Mia Farrow and many other people. Yeah, 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 yeah. The Beatles probably being the most famous, if you're like aware of the Maharishi at all. Yeah. It's probably, that was the guru that the Beatles visited and then like shortly thereafter went psychedelic. Yeah. And also ended up, at least Lennon ended up very mad at him, which is why he wrote Sexy Sadie, which was originally called Maharishi. And was about how much, how mad they were at him and how uh, full of shit he was. Yeah. (laughs) And maybe it's tipped because uh, there's a piece in here where he explicitly says how much he was influenced by Hunter S. Thompson writing at this time and really admires the new journalism movement. But a lot of these, I was surprised how much they felt like slightly less edgy Hunter Thompson pieces. And this was one of them. So it's fairly even handed. But it definitely has a bite and like it's a takedown, essentially, the Maharishi. Like, yes, it has a bunch of stuff. It just presents very coldly like I see people who do the meditation thing and their lives seem much better in a way that I envy and can't uh, simulate myself. I also see this and he'll like give an example of something really seemingly hypocritical that the Maharishi does. Yeah. Like make it so that you have to be wealthy in order to take paid classes in order to get the secret to do this thing. So it's basically just like journalism on the Maharishi. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and and very editorial, like his big slam on the Maharishi in this, I think is that he keeps saying that to follow the Maharishi's system, you don't have to really sacrifice anything or suffer or do any good work. And he keeps doing parallels between that and Jesus's message and keeps 
being critical of the Maharishi that way and keeps saying that, you know, at least Christianity, you have to like give something up of yourself yeah. and like be charitable. So uh, it, feel, it feels like oddly conservative to me in a, a positive he, well, way. Like not, not politically conservative, just like, sure. oh, good old fashioned values are actually the thing. And he still has some of the problems that he has with any religious sort of like religion feeling that's forming an organization. Like, here's what I'm getting at. He asked the Maharishi about people who are sy- systematically oppressed. And Maharishi says, Maharishi replied that any oppressed person could rise by practicing transcendental meditation. He would automatically do his job better and the economy would automatically pay him more and <laughs> right. then he could buy anything he wanted. Right. And I think we would all, most of us would agree that's pretty simple-minded, not yeah. uh, empathetic way of looking at like, Income inequality. So at the same time, Kurt is saying that he likes the idea of meditation and he sees the positive applications. There's ways in which he points out how simple-minded the guy is and how it does bear some resemblance to like the secret or like a club you join because it's trendy right now (laughs) and it promises to make you happy. Yeah, And in some places it's in lieu of like protests and like the civil rights movement. Right. (laughs) Yeah. Next, there is a thing we've already covered on the show called Fortitude, which is a short play that we talk about in our episode, but mainly about Happy Birthday, Wanda June. So yeah. You'll hear that thing. Uh, Fortitude's about heads in jars. Next. <laughs> <laughs> Next is uh, an article called There's a Maniac Loose Out There, which what? is in Whoa. Life magazine in 1969. He's caught. He's caught. It's okay. He's caught. <gasps> okay. Uh, call me each other down. He got room. elected to Congress. Am I right? <laughs> I don't even know which one I'm talking about. Waka, 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 waka. <laughs> this was maybe the first essay in this that really, really perked my interest and really engaged me because I felt like it was Kurt writing true crime. And that's a really cool yeah. flavor because it's a guy like Kurt who is is very positive about everyone writing about a horrible murder. <laughs> and since it's in the style of new journalism, again, we could adapt it into a serial type podcast yeah. if we wanted to reenact this one actually it would be a particularly good if we could get kurt because uh the way he accesses this story because well, he'd be alive again that would be great well, be, uh, be <laughs> but he also accesses it through it's a murderer named tony costa it was alleged at the time but i believe he was convicted since we'll go ahead and call him a murderer but he was committing murders on cape cod and kurt's daughter like knew him growing up they had run across each other. So this was somebody reasonably familiar to their family who it turned out was chopping ladies into pieces. Yeah. Well, the end of the story is Kurt asking his daughter about one time she had mentioned a guy at a party who was a creep. And he's like, was his name Tony Costa? So yeah, that's how close they were that he's like, I wonder if that guy ever planned on killing my daughter and just didn't go through with it. Yeah. And it's crazy throughout the book. Kurt really knew a bunch of weirdly noteworthy people for no reason. Yeah, he like just kept running across them. There's one later where it's like, my friend in high school grew up to marry the Secretary of Defense of the United yeah. States. <laughs> what are the odds? Right. And your daughter hung out with a serial killer? It's yeah. bizarre. <laughs> but yeah, again, it's like the Maharishi one in the sense that it's somewhat even-handed. There's a lot of damning evidence. I'm not surprised to hear he was convicted. Yeah. Because right. Kurt doesn't shy away from like, And I've heard from many people that he was like a spoiled, almost sociopathic child. Here's a story about that. Yeah. But then he also sprinkles in times he met him and he was like, 
didn't seem like a murderer. <laughs> yeah, well, because I think it's a really well written thing because he, as he unspools that evidence that Tony Costa did it, the really damning stuff kind of comes out later on toward the end, and you're you're as you're reading, still maybe thinking about whether he did it, and then when it gets to like, yeah, he had the rope in his closet that the murderer used. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> he did it. Oh, gotcha. But until then, he really does beautiful stuff with all the details. And I think that really this really brings home the main point or one of the main points of it which is called out explicitly when he talks to a young woman who says like man if tony costa's a murderer i just can't believe it because i knew him well and if he oh his daughter duh his daughter says if tony could be a murderer anyone could be a murderer and kurt as the narrator writes this was news to her like that's how (laughs) young she was so like he's saying these scenes where i'm showing him as normal is not to say he didn't do it I'm saying, yeah, anyone could be a murderer. Probably this guy did it. Yeah. <laughs> I know I knew him. That's all. <laughs> and he also says, uh, there's money to be made on the fringes of famous murders. For instance, I'm being paid to write this. <laughs> it's weird to think about. I it's mean an, it's a really cool piece. Yeah. A lot of these follow the very Kurdish tradition of like, it's just a mosaic of really insightful things that occurred to him while he meditated on this topic. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Next, we have a piece called Excelsior, We're Going to the Moon. Excelsior. I'm sorry, but as a guy who just wrote a book, Breakfast of Champions, where literally a character asks, why the fuck would you put the word Excelsior on something unnecessarily? He does it twice. He did. <laughs> and Excelsior means higher, so it's appropriate to the moon. Yeah. But two, certainly one, is superfluous. Yeah. Well, he, he put this in the New York Times Magazine in 1969 and probably hooked him with those sweet, sweet Excelsiors. Just, I got, I got all the Excelsiors you need, editor. And they were like, publish. Yeah. This there story, very formative to a young Stan Lee. <laughs> <laughs> and this is a sort of essay history of the progress toward going to the moon and also tying it in with a lot of things about technology and fear yes. of it and regretting it and it's and very, it's an- very meditative but another kurt surprise i would think surprise position he's not super into the space program yeah it's not that surprising when you realize how humanist he is and how much he you can tell he's a guy that constantly walks around worrying about the number of people who are starving and dying on the face of the earth. Right. So he can't justify why we'd spend X amount of dollars to send a thing to the moon when we know there's nothing there. It's just a rock. It's really cool that we got there, but we could get there in 500 years. We don't have to get there in 10 years. Yeah. And we should be feeding all the people of the world. At the same time, as a sci-fi author, you're like, <laughs> really? You don't want the space program? Wow. Right. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's kind of... Although also, I like as I thought about it, his novels tend not to have a lot of space travel that's super positive. Except or siren? Like, oh, that's positive. Okay. Yeah. Like, there's a lot of space travel, but it's never like, oh, space travel solved our problem. That's true. Like, that's yeah. something that really, really worked out for us. It's usually like, it's oh, no, another boondoggle for yeah. this main character. Yeah. At the very <laughs> least, it ruins your life. <laughs> He really, he like kind of uses the space program to just meditate on all of how we treat each other as a society. And as oh yeah, he can't resist dispensing wisdom on any topic. So like he pauses to point out that Carl Sagan has one of the most famous speeches that inspired a lot of people to think space is really awesome. And that speech first appeared in Playboy. 
and rockets are shaped like dicks and they fuck the sky and he's just like, I don't know, there's something there. It's just crazy <laughs> to me that space can be the purest instance of technology, yeah. but it's also still conflated with our most base urges. There's something there. Yeah. And then he goes like, next weirdos. section, and just talks about something else. Right. Yeah. Line break. Everybody. <laughs> Uh, and my favorite thing in there that I just can't skip past is yeah. he talks about Carl Sagan's amazing theory that, and man, it's so true if you follow sci-fi through its history, that sci-fi went through three main phases or speculative fiction, went from adventure dominant, so like Flash Gordon or and even yeah. earlier, the idea of just like, oh, a ray gun, don't explain how it works. It's exciting because it's the first time we've ever even thought of what if a guy had a ray gun. Right. Then sci-fi went into a phase called technology dominant, which is your 1984s, your Brave New Worlds, your player pianos, where we're like, oh, we're living in technology impacting us. Now we're going to exaggerate the effects of technology to meditate on what could this course be taking us down. And then he says in the final phase that we're currently in is sociology dominant, where almost every sci-fi story has a moral about how humanity needs to catch up spiritually to how powerful technology has made us yeah and that's such an apt analysis of sci-fi stories it's still happening now and i think it's cool that kurt says and i hope that that's what we're doing in real life like i hope humanity is also really following that pattern yeah maybe not but <laughs> i can see that I, I i do think two and three sort of blend together in a lot of cases but overall yeah like hopefully it's sort of how it breaks down and a lot of the technology yeah. dominant ones have morals obviously yeah that's true yeah yeah, yeah. next next this is uh, the first speech in the book it's called address to the american physical society and this was put in the Chicago Tribune magazine in 1969. And they called it Physicist Purge Thyself when they put it in the Trib magazine. Oh, so it did have a clickbait uh, title. Which is Good. like a fun title. But then in this book, it's just very clinical. Like, this was the speech he gave. And that speech yeah. is very curt e. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, It's what I mean, you'd expect. I mean, he's talking to a bunch of physicists. And uh, we just read one about how he firmly believes that we need to be more moral about our technology. So he beseeches all these new physicists, please be moral about your technology. Yeah. And it's funny as he like just spoils Cat's Cradle. I imagined a physicist in the audience being like, I just started oh, Cat's gonna... Cradle. Because oh, he's like, and I love <laughs> that if you read that book and you thought it was open to interpretation, it's not. We were right. Our analysis was right. Yeah. Our <laughs> he, show nailed it, guys. Yeah. Because he basically goes like, I wrote this book, Cat's Cradle. There's this scientist he asks about a turtle during a horrible family fight. That's how you know he's a dick. And I was like, <laughs> oh, wow. He really just laid it out there. Yeah, we did a good job. And he basically, it's a speech where he goes like, so don't you guys be dicks. Please don't make nuclear weapons. Yeah. Be like Val Kilmer in Real Genius or whatever. <laughs> I wish he'd literally said that. Or whatever. Uh, That's the end. There's one or two other chunks where there's one part where he says that he's 46 years old, which puts him in his sunset years as a writer, which is incredible to me that this was 1969 and he was like just doing Slaughterhouse Five right then and had like a lot of great stuff to go. You know, three or four times in really the book. wrong. <laughs> and previously in other works, he said like. I am old now. My children have grown and left. Right. I am but a withered old man in the twilight of my 41st year. You're like, <laughs> what are you talking about? Because he keeps saying like, and I chain smoke, so I'm probably going to die next year. He Super lived didn't. to a fairly ripe old age. Yeah. So it is definitely, I mean, I think it speaks to some of the issues he had, but he uh, constantly thought, I can't live much longer. Yeah. That's very telling about his personality, <laughs> I think. He's always saying, like, well, 
I won't bother you too long. I'm probably dying soon. Yeah. <laughs> here's four more novels. Uh, here's <laughs> the other half of my writing. Yeah, he's uh, Hayao Miyazaki, who keeps being like, Oh, yeah, no, like, well, that was the last movie. one. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, and there's also a chunk I really like where he talks about humanism as a general concept and then keeps going into how he feels his dog is a humanist. Because anyone who's fundamentally interested in other human beings is a humanist. My dog, super interested in people. I showed him <laughs> yeah. zoo animals. He was like, whatever, I'm a dog. People, he goes crazy. Way of doing yeah. But he's making the logical supposition a dog is a person. Yeah, that's true. Oops. <laughs> you lose, Kurt. Yeah. Next is an essay called Good Missiles, Good Manners, Good Night. And this was in the New York Times in September of 1969. It's very brief, and it's about uh, what Michael mentioned before, where he went to high school with the future wife of the Secretary of Defense. Yeah, and it, all he really does is point out how fucking sad it is that for all the things he's written about pacifism and how much he is horrified by violence, the way humans work is he knows if he were invited to her house, they're conservative, obviously, because they're it's the Secretary of Defense under Nixon, presumably. Yeah. So he's like... It's so fucking sad to me that if I were invited to their house, I would have a lovely dinner. I mm. would only make small talk. And I would be like, darn, I wish my wife could have made it. She would have had such a lovely time. Then I would go home and write an article about how everything they do is greedy and evil. But I would like <laughs> never say it to their face. And then he's like, I'm noticing that kids today are ruder. And I think that's good. Yeah, it's sort like of like an anti-PC tirade or like at least pro the protest movement. Vietnam's yeah. unfolding at this time, so obviously he's. it's sort of just like, yeah, kids, speak out against missiles, be better than I am, I'm too polite. Yeah, and like and like the relatively rare thing of an an older. I know we said now he's not old old, but like an older <laughs> person being like, yeah, the the youth are doing this better than we did, guys. Yeah. Like they actually they have it together. They should be yelling at these people. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. This is when he's pro hippies. Before I guess later when he decides, oh, never mind, they suck too. <laughs> right. <laughs> Enjoy your time in the sun, hippies. <laughs> Next, we have an essay called Why They Read Hess. It was in a magazine called Horizon in 1970, and it's mostly about the author Herman Hess. Herman Hess. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, arguably aimed at the hippies or an analysis of the hippies from an outside vantage. Yeah. Because when he says they... He's largely talking about the youth, which is sort of sort of an overlap of the beat generation turning into the hippie kids. It's and like that age and also college kids and also it's that yeah, yeah. of his of his era. And a lot of them are turning to Herman Hess, who if you didn't know, uh, his most famous work is Siddhartha, which is basically the novelization of the Buddha's life story. Right. Yeah, it's <laughs> yeah, like the novelization much. of Star Wars, but of the Buddha, what yeah. people believe about the Buddha. <laughs> and of course, as I'm sure you know, if you know anything about the 60s, people were looking for paths to peace and were being turned on to the methodologies of meditation and the beliefs of the Far East. So there was a huge boom among the hippie generation of reading about Eastern belief, including the works of Hermann Hesse, who himself, like he was a German he who fled to Switzerland. Switzerland, yeah. shortly before the Holocaust. And uh, Vonnegut, basically, it's like a book report. He makes yeah. the case that they're into him because he fled shortly before the Holocaust. All of or his actually, works. He, he left before World War One. I'm sorry. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. but before a major yeah. tragedy. His works capture unfathomable homesickness because you know, like, there's a lost innocence of the place you came from originally, but also you were safe and made it out and you live in like a nice country like Switzerland. So all of his books have these really happy endings where the hero finds 
complete enlightenment and spiritual fulfillment. Yeah. And kids in the 60s dealing with Nixon and Vietnam knew that shit was bad, but yes. wanted to believe spiritual enlightenment would save the world. So he was the perfect writer for that time. Yeah, yeah. And they were of a mood to leave and generally couldn't, or a few did. And he, he, he goes way into Siddhartha. He also goes way into another novel by Hess called Steppenwolf and talks about how it's a book about homesickness. And so it's in particular hooking college kids because they're homesick. They just went to college. Yeah. <laughs> Great band. <laughs> and, Great theater in Chicago. Uh, the band's the best, though. <laughs> <laughs> And he he also, I think, briefly mentions Beneath the Wheel, uh, which is another Hess book about, but it's about the grind of academia. And it's sort of specific to like German preparatory high school. Well, he quotes a ton. Yeah, he quotes a ton of Hess's books, especially the endings, just to show that they all have the same ending, which is interesting. Yeah. It's kind of like a cracked article in that way. Like he assembles (laughs) the works of a writer and is like, gotcha, this is what you're about. Yeah. It's all one universe. Yeah. All the, all the Hess characters. Yeah. You like, you like young barefoot women with magic powers, Joss Whedon. Gotcha. <laughs> Next. Next. Uh, this is a book ooh, review. Ooh, ooh. Can I say the title? Yeah. Oversexed in Indianapolis. Ooh. Ooh, the lights just dimmed. That was amazing. <laughs> they flickered and now they're like a dirty yellow <laughs> with a moth dying, batting itself against the right. enclosure. You can see both our skeletons now. It's very creepy. This is a book review that appeared in Life magazine and it's a review of a book called Going All the Way by an author named Dan Wakefield. Dan Wakefield became a longtime friend of Kurt and also is the editor of an excellent collection of his letters that we quote all the time on the show. It's basically a plug for a friend. Yeah. <laughs> Seems clear to me a friend had a book coming out and asked him if he would plug it. And he wrote 400 words doing just that. <laughs> It's like a little bit of a meditation on where America is at in Vietnamese times. It has great turns of phrase because it's Kurt. Like, it's a book about a small town like The Last Picture Show or something like that. So he describes a small town like that as like a pinball machine where the bumpers are made of drive-ins and malt shops. And you're like, that's a cool description. Yeah. But it's basically just a link to Dan Wakefield's book. (laughs) It's like, if you like this, read my pal's book. Yeah, yeah. And he also, there's one interesting bit I thought where he talks about how belly laughs work and how he thinks they're often from something that has a little unhappiness under the joke. And I was like, oh, that's interesting. But like you said, it pretty much links back. Like it's we'll, pretty much. <laughs> we'll get to that in my vinyl what's. Because I, what? I don't even want to say it. Yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. yeah. We'll hold I like that, that you're confused. <laughs> it gives it me the power. The way. It gives me the edge <laughs> in Indianapolis. <laughs> The lights cannot do that anymore. It is bad for the building. Next, we have a piece called The Mysterious Madame Blavatsky. This is a cracked article. Yeah. No, it's fascinating. I don't Uh, know why you could do a helmet history about it if she wore a a unique hat. (laughs) Yeah, and if people were wrong about her. Yeah, 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 that's true. But I mean, like, something. I actually think this is now, I guess, off mic time. But I'm telling you, Alex. (laughs) We got to get her in an article. This should be, she should be yeah, in, that would in be an pretty article. Cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. This article was in McCall's in 1970. McCall's was made. Yeah. But they didn't do a good job. We'll do a better job. Yeah, but it's like, <laughs> the reason I call it a cracked article is there's no moral. He delves probably the least into like what it's about to be alive or human. It's yes. just about this really interesting lady who lived. Yeah. And he's like, this was crazy. She did this. 
this is it's very interesting. It's just the story of this amazing lady. Yeah, she uh, left Russia, came to America, and became the co-founder of the Theosophical Society, and basically became an occult expert and medium and person who dealt in mystical things that attracted a large following because she was a magnetic person. Yeah, she was the very first Russian to become an American citizen, actually, or a Russian woman, I think, to become an yeah. American citizen. And uh, she's described as basically looking like Ursula from The Little Mermaid Yeah, if she wore, like, furs that she went and hunted in, like, northeast U.S., like a fur trapper. Apparently she wore, like, just a skinned animal head on her waist that was stuffed with tobacco, yeah. constantly chain-smoked cigarettes she rolled herself, so Kurt's obviously a kindred spirit, hooked up with this wacky, crazy general dude, and it's both very clear from the stories that she has severe mental illnesses yeah. and is a skilled magician in terms of like showmanship and sleight of hand. But there was probably a mix of she really believed she that there were ghosts and she knew she was conning people. You know how crazy people are. Maybe she somehow didn't realize she was conning people while she was conning people. Yeah. So it's like this crazy lady who's just endlessly fascinating. She yeah. wrote many books of over a thousand pages. And if I can just read one a of the... thousand pages? No, don't no, do that. No, no, no. But one of the quotes <laughs> from one of her books is... So that you understand I'm not being like, I'm not just talking out of my ass when I say she was crazy. The evidence is, here's a passage from one of her books. It is the moon that plays the most important part in the formation of the earth itself, as in the peopling thereof with human beings. The lunar monads, or pitries, the ancestors of man, become in reality man himself. They are the monads who enter the cycle of evolution on globe A, passing the chain of planets, evolving human forms, as has been shown. At the beginning of the stage of the fourth round on globe A, they ooze out their astral doubles from the ape-like form. I'm glad that you mentally read that in the same voice I do, where it's like a monotone. She like, goes into and a now trance. We will go into the piano. Like, yeah, yeah, because they describe her as just sitting down and going into a trance and writing a thousand pages. So it all yeah. makes and without ever using any reference books. You know, she's just like, oh, ghosts told me this is how the universe works. Yeah, no, re- no research. <laughs> yeah. like, I believe this strongly. Yeah. Yeah, it's a really fascinating. I think he's drawn to her as someone full of. He, he feels she's someone full of FOMA, you know. But it, yes. and that's the connection. That's why he cares. She's someone who made life but. way more interesting and didn't really hurt anyone, even though everything she said is probably bullshit. Yeah. But like, shouldn't we celebrate her anyway? Because it was entertaining. Who cares? Yeah. Which is really and, fun. Uh, and very curt. Yeah. yeah. I think there's a subtle case to be made in it also that. It's a tale of like complete someone struggling with gender identity at a time when there was no way to navigate that. Yeah. Because he also goes into how she is completely asexual and believed that her spiritual powers stemmed from how revolted she was by the idea of having sex with men. Yeah. And, and her, she, her yeah. nickname is Jack. And she married is, her husband yeah. and immediately uh, fled the wedding, apparently, like before <laughs> yeah. the wedding night could be consummated. Yeah. She literally was like, I do. I got to catch a cab. <laughs> Yeah, it's the kind of fascinating person. Very uh, interesting. Usually hear about on our website, correct? Next, we have an article called Biafra, A People Betrayed, which was in McCall's in April of 1970. So he was writing a lot for McCall. Yeah. The heaviest piece, if yeah. you know anything about Biafra, it was a short lived, short uh, for a little more than three years. It was a culture and society that attempted to secede from Nigeria and create its own country yeah. and uh, was reabsorbed by Nigeria with much loss of life and starvation and war. Yeah. 
And he also treats it as it was sort of an artist collective that was a country. He's very pro Biafran and sad that the that it ceased to exist. Yeah. Yeah. And so he goes on a trip there because they're trying to bring authors and reporters and artists there to record their country and what's happening to them. And he apparently gets on the last plane out when he's done doing this visit. Yeah. Because from there they lose. And it obviously weighed very heavily on him because in every speech that's dated after this trip, he mentions it very explicitly as having effect. Like, I think for the next years of his life, he had to incorporate his trip to Biafra into his consciousness. It's something like the bombing of Dresden or like uh, his mother's suicide. It, It seems to be a key tragedy that he witnessed and was like shocked and appalled by and, and had to grapple with for a long time. Yeah. And it's just, I don't know what to say about it. It's like uh, the riverboat trip one in the sense that it's just a journal of his travels. Right. Witnessing extreme starvation and people being burned to death and gruesomely murdered. Yeah. As you'd expect in like a modern civil war in Africa. Yeah. And he's he's with his friend Vance Borgeli. Uh, as he goes, they taught together at Iowa. And funny name, though. Funny name. Vance Borgeli. And he meets the equivalent of George Washington of Biafra, like their main general. Mm-hmm. And he meets all sorts of different people there. And he ends with sort of a message of people ask me if I, I should hate Nigerians because they did this to Biafra. And I say, no, nah, you shouldn't hate Nigeria. You know, it's we're all people and, and the world says something that I mean, it's in America. It's hard not to make the instinctive comparison to our own civil war where we're taught that it's super good that we reabsorbed the people that tried to get away at all costs because it ended slavery, among other things, and kept the country yeah. together. So I don't know thoroughly enough Nigerian or Biafran history to the point where, right, I can come down on a side. And I don't think he does either. And that's sort of what he ends by saying is like, oh, am I saying Biafra should have won? I don't know. It's kind of an internal Nigerian matter. I don't even know if like it was America's place to use more bombs to change the equation. I'm just saying it's fucking sad. All these kids died, don't you think? And then people are like, so you're saying hate Nigerians? And he's like, no, I'm just (laughs) saying it's fucking sad. All these kids died, isn't it? Yeah. Like, that's all you can really say. This, yeah. country, this country got the life squeezed out of it. Exactly. I, mean, I don't know. It was hor- It was incredible to be there. Yeah. Yeah. Next, we have a speech, another speech. This is the address. Yeah, that feeling the... does not whoosh off you. Yeah. I still no, got no. some of that Biafra story <laughs> in my he, soul. Well, he talks about it right away in yes. this speech, like he said. This speech is his address to the graduating class at Bennington College in 1970, and that was published in Vogue magazine in uh, May of 19... No, August of 1970. After he did that, they called it Up is Better Than Down when it ran in Vogue. This is his clearest uh, essay I've read or speech that I've read so far. That's the same as like Eisenhower's Beware the Military Industrial Complex speech. Yeah. Like in the way that Rosewater was like, aha, we're just getting down to brass tacks anti-capitalism. This is just brass tacks like, people, please don't let Boeing contractors make a series of deals with the military because everything will just be fucked it's his version of that warning and a lot of smart people were making that warning at this time and arguably we didn't listen and it's too late but (laughs) but this is his speech about that yeah and he also is speaking to graduating college students and he tells them at the end of it like spend a lot of time goofing off yeah careers are a thing also some of those careers might lead you into the military or making napalm or something goof off a lot yeah don't even get into it (laughs) he has a little bag of like five truths he thinks he's arrived at and he echoes all of those which are well what have i learned that could be helpful 
try and develop an extended family, even if it's art, like through a, a artificial means. Yeah, right. A foma. Just yeah. make it up, or or even if it's a what's it called? A false caress. Oh, well, kind of a grand falloon. But guess. a grand falloon's yeah. only two people. No, that's a dupress. Yeah. yeah. So he's like, grand falloons, if they work for you, great. Join groups. Believe in astrology. Yeah. Because, like, there's so many people in the world who are not given opportunities. And let's say, in addition, they're ugly and dumb because of genetics. And they're not given the opportunity to learn a trade or anything. They're fucked, man. Let's stop, like, kidding ourselves. Did you see the movie Precious? Like, there's <laughs> many... Like, I mean, that was a great illustration if you yeah. never, if you weren't aware of it. Of There are people who are born into a life where there's no options. It's just a corridor to shittiness. So he's like, uh, so why not believe in astrology? Because look at this loser. Now he's a Leo. And Leos are brave and forthright and get along well with Sagittarius or whatever. Yeah. So he's like, believe in shit that's helpful no matter what. If it's religion, believe in that. He also says, I suggest that you work toward a socialist form of government. I'm out. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he really does have a lot of astrology and socialism, in it, yeah. which I wouldn't necessarily expect. And uh, I also love that he says uh, a Shakespeare quote. Well, yeah. I'll save it for a blurt because he says a Shakespeare quote that I want to unpack more. But then he also says, you know, there's a quote from the same play about where we get the phrase, the worm is turned, which is no matter how small the worm, if you tread on it, it will turn. Meaning like, you know, when you step on a worm and it tries to attack you or like it squirms <laughs> involuntarily. And right. he's like, just trust me, you guys. I've stepped on lots of worms. No, you they can just, crush a worm. They just die. If yeah. you get nuked. You're not going to come back from it. Right. No Socialism. Turn. I'm out. No <laughs> turn. Yeah. <laughs> it's a pretty desperate speech. Kind of yeah. sad. <laughs> yeah. And, and punchy, too. Next, we have an essay called Torture and Blubber. This was in the New York Times in June of 1971. And this is mostly about the Vietnam War and about the idea that you can't torture a population into surrendering. Yeah. He says, agony never made a society quit fighting as far as I know. If you look back in history, that's actually a really sound argument. A society has to be captured or killed or offered things it values. Yeah. Uh, and he blames fiction, as he had does throughout <laughs> his career, for telling too many stories that end with the hero shot the bad guy, everything lived happily ever after. So he apologizes on behalf of storytellers. Yeah, having just read Breakfast of Champions, if you read this in the New York Times when it came out, you would have got like a preview of the book. That yeah. Amazing. Especially that chunk about how storytellers sort of misled people into yeah. some real life things is a really interesting theory. And he's he saying, A, torture doesn't work on an individual human, and B, torture doesn't work on a grand sense, meaning we're not going to torture the Vietnamese into changing their form of government. Yeah. You can exterminate them all or give up. And he was right. We gave up. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah. The, the title blubber, it's referring to the verb like a grown man crying, not like whale blubber or something. And yeah, he even looks at other historical examples like the Spanish Armada to say, hey, you can't punish a society into giving up. You have to do the things that uh, he listed. Right. Yeah. And if you look at how World War One became World War Two. The same lesson is in there. It's repeated yeah. all over the world many dozens of times. Yeah. We don't have to get into it here. Listen to Dan Carlin's Hardcore History. <laughs> uh, it's such a good show. Plug that. Next, we have another speech. This is addressed to the National Institute of Arts and Letters in 1971. Arts and Letters? Yeah. Their heads will explode. <laughs> and he, he talks a lot in this about the overall idea that we're all chemicals. He also talks about... 
his own time as a student, specifically a graduate student, and that one of the happiest times of his life was October of 1945, when he was admitted to the anthropology department at the University of Chicago after the war to be a student of anthropology. And I think he does a he does a pretty funny dramatic irony thing where he's like, when I was a kid then, I thought like, oh, I've gotten into this school anthropology department. Now I will study people. But like, no, he, he kind of studied people in World War II, you know? <laughs> he yeah. kind of got an education. And there. he thought falsely, now I'm part of a family. Now I'm part of an extended family of camaraderie. Yeah. And uh, he's kind of was kind of wasn't he's found camaraderie with yeah he seems to have a hard time fitting in he really wants an extended family but he constantly says like i have fit in with sci-fi writers i have fit in with intellectuals i have fit in so i think he is someone who had some trouble feeling like he belonged probably just because of his own chemicals making him feel that way but he talks about very about his transition from like looking up to his brother being all about science he says this quote three or four times throughout his whole body of work, expecting scientists to take a picture of God any day now and print it in color on the front page of Life magazine or whatever. Yeah. And then he got bored with that, became an archaeologist, learned what he already knew, which is that mankind has made and smashed bowls for many thousands of years, <laughs> quit that, and, yeah. and joined cultural anthropology. And basically his whole argument in this one, and the reason I recommend reading this speech, is it's the clearest time he lays out in the most depth his folk community, folk societies theory. Yes. Which tells you so much about all the other books and how he thinks. He is someone who really thinks like we were happier at some point in the past. Yeah. yeah. Uh, Maybe the middle, maybe pre-Middle Ages. Or if we could get back to a level of primitivism in our social interactions, no matter what the level of technology is, we need to be living in small communities where you have an extended family of people and you recognize all their faces and you all agree. And he says, you don't even have to know what he, ask what each other are thinking because you all think the same things. And I will say that immediately made me cringe because that's kind of like saying, well, yeah, it's easy to get along and make a model society if everyone's one race, one culture, one thought, you know? Oh, it's yeah. sort of, It's like anti, I think, it's running away from reality, which is, well, but life is messy and people need to get along with people, even if they don't think the exact same thing. <laughs> but then he immediately says later in this book in the Playboy interview, which I was like, now I get what he means. The Playboy interviewer says... So do you mean that? Do you mean you want every you just want to live in a community of like-minded people? And he said, "No. I want to live a life that's simple enough that all of our minds are blank. That's why yeah. we're all thinking the same thing. We don't need to think about anything." <laughs> like he thinks Right, we could he, just graze or whatever. We he's really like, decided yeah. that there's kind of the human brain and the complexity of human thought is kind of just a useless babbling to itself. Like it hasn't yeah. helped him, and he doesn't see the point. Like Smart Bunny, and you see that? Like yeah, like the Kilgore Trout short story, The Smart Bunny, where totally. a rabbit has a human brain and it's a problem. Yeah, <laughs> and you can see that he's advanced on the hippie issue because in this speech, instead of talking about the middle of the hippie movement, he explains how the hippie movement is not going to work and why it's not going to work. Yeah, like he says, the world is now divided. Windows over, hippies. <laughs> yeah, he says the world is now divided into people who have realized humanity's doomed because we forsook folk societies and it's too late and kids who think they can form folk societies falsely with drugs and sex and they're going to peter out and realize that you can't do that it's such a downer on this one it was <laughs> it really like is. some of these are speeches to kids graduating from things and yeah. i'm like 
Sorry, They're guys. very dark for like a commencement <laughs> speech. They yeah. are. He really goes for it. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Next, we have a piece called Reflections on My Own Death, which appeared in a magazine called Rotarian, which is probably for Rotary Clubs or something. So a little lighter. In 1972. Yeah, he goes from that speech to this very brief thing about, I don't know, how he'll die and how everyone in his family died and how there was a lot of suicide and other, other pain. Yeah, and it's it's, a it's a, like a page time. and a half long, so yeah. that's all we have on it. <laughs> so it's a diff- it's it's a difficult piece, and he also says that uh, like the sun will die and all this will go away, but this moment and every moment lasts forever. So I don't know. He tries to yeah. pull some kind of oh, I guess the meaning in life might be that these things happened, and you can you can hang on to that, or it can't be erased at least. Things that happened really happened, or they seem to have, or they yeah. may as well have, because this is the only way we interpret reality. So, And he says this in the previous segment in the speech as well. I think one of the core dilemmas of his life and of any like introspective person in this life is that like you will die and everything will die. The sun will blow up and kill everything. And so many people are so sad and suffer so much, and you can tell it's totally arbitrary, or I feel strongly. There's no plan. It's not for. It's not going to work out better later because they suffered. Right. It's just happened that way. Why is the universe like that? But then at the same time, he can describe moments in his life that were truly, beautifully, wonderfully enjoyable to a point of divinity and that moment happened and it will always have happened. Like the best image I think is, well, he says like his father's, his, one of his grandfather's best day of his life was sitting on the cow catcher of a moving train as it like, and this sounds so awesome to me, drove under old wooden bridges and through trees in the rural South by a lazy river. And he's <laughs> like, and even when the sun explodes, the molecules of that cow catcher and my grandfather's bones will be in the explosion. So you're like, yeah, Things are good and also bad. (laughs) And that's all they can be. Everything is what it is. Yeah. Next, we have uh, an article called In a Manner That Must Shame God Himself. This was in Harper's Magazine in November of 1972. So Hunter S. Thompson-y. Yeah, it's about Kurt's trip to the Republican National Convention in 1972 in Miami Beach. And in a larger sense, it's kind of rosewatery too. Yeah. Uh, In the first couple paragraphs, he says, the two parties in the in America are not Republican and Democrat. It's the winners and the losers. Yeah. And then the whole thing's an extended metaphor explaining as if it were to an alien. He literally says, if someone came from space, this is what I would say to them to explain American civics. There's the winners and the losers. The winners aren't evil. It's human nature to be greedy because you just want your family to be safe. What could be more human than that? But the reason they're fucking evil is because they do everything they can to ignore that the losers are suffering and that it's because they're so greedy. The loser party does this. They're the party (laughs) of George McGovern. They'll always fucking fail. They'll never get the votes. (laughs) So it's it's the political tirade that you have always wanted from Kurt. (laughs) And, and, And also the boiled down aspect to it. Like he was writing this piece as he was doing his last edit on Breakfast of Champions. And it really feels like that early chunk of Breakfast of Champions where yeah. he's explaining the founding of America and the national anthem and, and all just the most basic things he can. And it's crazy how all the problems that people point out with the system today are. I mean, it's only 40 years ago, but it's still exactly the same. Like nothing has changed. <laughs> so he does your standard takedown of the media for being complicit in all the problems, which I love. This yeah. is a great part. Barbara Walters sees him covering the event. 
and he's famous, so she asks if he'll do a Barbara Walters interview. And he says, I have nothing to say about this topic. I'm going to put it all in my column. I don't want to repeat myself. And she says, you don't have to say much. It's just like a friendly interview. And he's like, yeah, but I'd have to say something. It's the news. Like, I should have something to say. And she says, no, just say hello. And then he just writes again, hello. Like, fucking, like, you can hear him thinking, like, you're Barbara Walters, the respected news person. You're telling me the news doesn't matter if it has any content. Yeah. Fuck you. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) I'm not going to come on your show just to small talk. And he also, I feel like, does a pretty strong slam on clowning and satire as far as how it's not actually derailing any form of uh, evil politics. It's just becoming, he calls it lubricant for the machine. It's it's great. We discussed that this is an epiphany I only had this year, but yeah. Yeah. He has a beautiful thing about how satire, by allowing people to laugh it off, just perpetuates the thing. You got to fight with like real words and be serious. (laughs) (laughs) And then uh, as the final bitter example of that, where the title comes from, in a matter that must shame God himself. He talks about a a group of Chippewa representatives who have basically come because it's clear that Nixon's going to win by a landslide, and they are trying to get their uh, issues on the table and get the president to care about how horribly Native Americans are being treated, as always. And they end up not being able to talk to any member of the administrative group, so they just get in line, in the line to get autographs from... The first lady, the future first lady, Nixon's wife, and they're hoping to hand her this beautiful speech about the bitter disappointments the Native Americans have suffered, and they're hoping she might pass it to her husband. Yeah, and they're just like fucking sad, (laughs) and they're refusing to speak at all too because they're and they don't want to be associated with the hippies. Yeah, they want to be respectable. They came in business suits. Like it's sad how hard they're trying to look like politicians because they're like. Look, we're doing everything you asked in the system you imposed upon us. Here's our thing we drafted. Here's the petition. And still they're like, oh, we're busy. (laughs) It's sad. And it is. And like you said, it's very Hunter, but but Tom Biker. Next, we have an article called Thinking Unthinkable, Speaking Unspeakable. This was in the New York Times in January of 1973. And it's a piece mainly just comparing prohibition to vietnam and how prohibition made our police awful and then vietnam made our soldiers awful and what an experiment is kurt's take on it yeah (laughs) yeah he was saying uh and it didn't happen to the degree but he's basically saying like we did prohibition it created gangsters because before that there was no organized crime the main crime they started with was bootlegging alcohol that grew into the mob and he says rightly so the mob will probably peter out but it'll take hundreds of years now and do untold damage i wonder what vietnam will make and he's like it's he almost imagines like a movie I want to see, but I don't want it to happen. He's like, you're gonna have this highly paid mercenary class of crazy Vietnam vets. Yeah. Like he imagines a like, thousand Rambo's are gonna right, come back. I was gonna say first blood, yeah, and like, like attack everybody. the country, yeah, yeah, yeah. And he says maybe that won't happen, but my point is, let's stop Vietnam. <laughs> That's <laughs> it's it's a straight up anti-Vietnam one. Yeah, it's it's just that. Next, we have his address at the rededication of Wheaton College's library in 1973. And uh, yeah, Wheaton College is in the Chicago suburbs, and it's next to the town I grew up in. So I've been there. What up, Wheaton? How's it going? Okay. Yeah, it was a really interesting piece of analysis. It made me. me think of Will Wheaton, and then I couldn't parlay with you because I was thinking of Will Wheaton. <laughs> uh, he's great. 
Yeah, uh, he's also great. And uh, he talks about how he's doing this speech two days before his 50th birthday, so there's a strong Breakfast of Champions And of vibe. course he says, so I'm sure I'll be dead in the next right. couple of years. <laughs> Obviously my writing days are over. Don't worry about old Uncle Kurt. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Michael just did like a Nixon beast sign. Yeah. Just did this perfect for it. I'm uh, gonna die. <laughs> <laughs> and he also talks a lot about good and evil and books and their role in it. And also here and, and in a lot of these pieces, we keeps talking about Richard Nixon's psychology and where it could possibly be coming from and All what it's the, like yeah. to be in a country run by a president who doesn't like us was how, is how we talked about him in the preface. All the armchair psychologists who are scared of Trump and trying to figure out what makes him tick. It seems yeah. very similar. Yeah, it's he's all like, that. Yeah. He's obviously a very anti all of Nixon's stances. So he spent some time trying to figure out, like, what uncle touched Nixon and made him so hateful? Like, <laughs> <laughs> why is he fucked up? What's wrong with this guy? Yeah. So there's some of that. <laughs> And he also, and at the end of it, he, I think he's relatively friendly to Nixon because he says that Nixon is probably a man who could be great if he defeats the evil that's within him, and then compares him to a novelist named Celine who had some great early books and then just became a angry anti-Semite after that. Right. So he says, uh, and I believe this, you know, even if Woody Allen did it, <laughs> doesn't make the good movies he made not good. And uh, truth comes from crazy people often. But, like, you can right. accidentally stumble upon truth. You can be crazy. You can be evil and stumble upon truth. And no one's all good or all evil or all sane or all crazy. Yeah. And storytellers should stop presenting reality that way because it's not helpful. And that artists or just people can, like, improve in life. Yeah. Like, they can find their better self. Yeah. So it's a, there's a positivity to it there, I think. Next, we have an article called Invite Rita Rate to America. Rita Right. He right. says it's oh, yeah, that's right. Yeah. Say, yeah. I'm just contrary. Rita Right to America uh, to fly a kite. <laughs> this was in the New York Times book review in January of 1973. It's basically a GoFundMe page. <laughs> yes. It's another one where it's just linking to something. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and she, because she was the translator of a lot of American authors, including Kurt Vonnegut, into Russian. And so that's how a lot of Soviet people read writers like Mailer and Steinbeck and Kurt Vonnegut. Yes. And but so he, he does, says, hey, we should get yeah. her over here for some fun. Come on. Yeah. And she's aging. She really is. She's in her 70s. Kurt, you amateur. Right. <laughs> and so he's like, we should get her over here because she's done so much for the literary world and we should give her a tour and introduce her to all the famous writers she loves. And uh, I hope that happens. Do you know if it worked? I don't know. All right. Yeah, I should have looked uh, it up. Don't know. The only thing that really stuck out to me is he does a good job really making you understand how important translators are in a way that I didn't appreciate before. In that, you know, she was really the gatekeeper. Her taste decided what profound truths would reach from our cultures could reach Russian people that they might resonate with. So in that sense, she's the author of those like of those ideas. And yeah. what is Kurt if not a translator? Because he didn't invent the idea of it would be nice to not think so much. He got that idea from a number of authors he read growing up, and he's translating it into his own words. So, like, it very beautifully blurs the lines between translating and writing and makes her seem incredibly dignified and important. Yeah. It's a real good fluff piece. You certainly like Read or Write by the end. Yeah, you want, you want to <laughs> click that link. You want, yeah. you want to get over there. Next, we have another address. This is his address to the Penn Conference, P-E-N. In Stockholm, in I think it was. This was the fifteenth Penn conference, actually. So oh. it was the address to the PENI five conference. 
Yeah. I mean, I did a lot so, of research in this area. <laughs> <laughs> oh, balls. Yeah, uh, write yourselves cards to say yeah, you're a member yeah. of the club. <laughs> yeah, but anyway, that's a journalism. It's a journalism conference for journalists. Sure it is. Uh, sure it is, buddy. <laughs> and Kurt mostly talks about Vietnam in this and journalism and writing's influence on yeah. it. As he admits in his preface, this is a very Vietnam and Nixon-driven collection. But he talks about how all that anti-Vietnam writing was the literary equivalent of an atomic bomb, and it had the actual force of a banana cream pie. Like, if you just dropped <laughs> one pie on the war. But then he goes on to say, and he does a stupid improv bit where he goes like, all right, now all the government people get out of the room. Okay, writers, <laughs> here's the real truth. Yeah, yeah. He does that old bit. But he says... I firmly believe this. And this yeah. is why storytelling is important to analyze and change your mode of storytelling to something you think is doing good work in the world. He says, you can write very beautifully and compellingly on why Vietnam is evil. The people in power who are making Vietnam happen don't care what you say. Sticks and stones may break their bones, but words will never hurt them. They can shrug it off so easily. They will do whatever the fuck they want, and you will not stem the tide of blood. That's the bad news. The good news is there are completely powerless children yes. reading your books in school in 30 years. You actually may, there's a slim chance, yeah. your ideas will inform their behavior when they have the levers of control in their power. So all you can really do as a writer is write the truest stuff you can then die. Don't hope for anything to get better in your lifetime right, or right. the very least until you're very, very old. <laughs> but don't expect an article you publish to stop the Vietnam War. He's yeah. very cynical about that. He doesn't think Nixon gives a shit, which <laughs> is probably true. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you do see it happen, I think, too. And it really, like the current Speaker of the House is just an Ayn Rand super fan. Like he, go, he yeah. read the heck out of her novels, and then now that's the Speaker of the House. You know, like you see that happen in politics. Yeah, and of course, yeah. Trump famously loves C Spot Run. Uh, he does <laughs> makes all his major policy decisions based on that. <laughs> oh, but you know what's great about Kurt also is you never get through any of these without at least one cool feet of writing. Yeah. So in this one, he uh, has an extended metaphor I like where he describes writers as specialized cells in the body that is America. And it's humble, as he always is. He says, so writers aren't shit. They're no more or less important than any other job. I don't have any ideas. All the sensory organs, which are the people who have much more interesting real lives than me, they live their lives. As a writer, I research, I interview people, I, I bump into people, and I synthesize it into information that I hope is useful. And that's and writers are cells that do that. That's yeah, just kind of a cool thought. It's a really cool metaphor. Like for, they're yeah, just artists in a society. Yeah, I've often thought about that myself because when you sit down and brainstorm, don't you always be like, "Okay, I need something original that no one's ever thought of before." There's no such thing, whether you know it or right. not. Literally, all the words in your head you learned what well, in your life. <laughs> so <laughs> all ideas are just creative co recompositions of ideas that you've filtered out. Yeah. Next, we have a article called A Political Disease. This was in <laughs> Harper's Magazine. And we're By all political. coming down with something from the government. And uh, this is a review of Hunter S. Thompson's book, Fear and Loathing on the Campaign Trail 72. So it's about Hunter S. Thompson rambling around the country following politics. And Kurt argues that Hunter S. Thompson might be making a large cry for help through all of his writing. 
Oh, certainly. Well, I mean, yeah, his, the sheer drug intake. But he uses it again as an extended metaphor. I think he is, he's a humanist, so he probably cares that Hunter yeah. is healthy. But his real point is that Hunter is yet another canary in the coal mine, as so many writers are. Right. So he's like, he has Hunter S. Thompson disease, which is the disease to still be optimistic and think that there's a chance that humanity's goodness could win out. And that yeah. disease can't help but make you slowly take drugs and go insane because the world is so awful and evil. Right. And so he's saying, let's all help Hunter S. Thompson stay healthy by making the world not so fucking shitty. Yeah, he really pushed the idea that Hunter is dying of what life is like. Is dying of how cynical the world is. Yeah. Which is f such a cool flip because obviously Hunter's style is aggressive and punk rock and feels cynical. But Kurt is pointing out the obvious, which is that only someone who really loves other human beings and actually does give a shit yeah. would be so stressed out about the state of the world that they fly around the country taking drugs, trying to figure out why everyone's so unhappy. Yeah. You know, that's that's the sign of someone who cares very much. But yeah, yeah, I was I didn't know he loved Hunter so much, and that's super awesome to me. Yeah, I knew I knew you'd get a kick. Yeah, you're a oh, big you Hunter knew fan. that. Yeah, yeah. So and like... it's like clearly affected so many of the pieces in this book in particular. Or yeah, like I, so. I feel like when he tackled essays, he was like, I'm gonna put a little Hunter sting in there <laughs> yeah okay in in this piece he comes back to specifically talking about the new journalism and he calls it the literary equivalent of cubism which is a clear compliment because yeah. cubism is so cool and yeah. uh and it's a, it's a good metaphor or an analogy it's probably more accurate right and it's like that like we were saying because cubism was i'm not going to paint what i see i'm going to paint what i see filtered through how i feel about what i see yeah there's other painting genres that did that in different ways as well but Cubism did it with attitude. And yeah, he's like, and that's what that new feel. journalism is doing. It's saying, here's the facts. I think one, three, and seven are bullshit, man. <laughs> and that and that can be in a newspaper now. Like that's journalism too. That's valid journalism. Yeah. I think it is. <laughs> and then next and last, we have Playboy Interview. It's Kurt being interviewed by Playboy magazine in July of 1973. When he did Welcome to the Monkey House, he wrote that title story for Playboy and then as kind of a new story to help tie together a story collection. Yeah. I feel like this interview was sort of done to tie together this kind of collection, too, because it's a really extended, long meditation on everything to round off the book. I thought it should have gone first, although maybe because it's the longest thing in the book. Yeah. The publisher didn't want people to think everything was so long or like start with that. Yeah. But it makes you want to read the book again immediately because the Playboy <laughs> interview, he talks about each piece you just read, explains what it means and like what you might have missed. Yeah. And I would say very frankly and clearly unlocks many, many keys to his writing. Oh, big time. Like yeah. explicitly goes like, Oh, yeah, Breakfast of Champions is about this. I tend to do these four things. <laughs> like, <laughs> he makes it so clear. It's awesome. Yeah. And also is clearly his next novel is going to be slapstick and is clearly thinking through the book. Yeah. He like, like the does, whole premise of slapstick is in here. But he throws it out like anecdotes, like I'm toying with this idea. And then he does act two of slapstick. And you're like, oh, he's going to turn that into slapstick later. Right. It's great. Yeah. I think the most interesting thing that came from it for me was that he said, because, you know, at the end of Breakfast of Champions, he's pointedly set free and released from duty all the recurring characters up to this point in the Kurtiverse. Right. And he said that that was supposed to represent a transition in his life. I get the feeling he really does. He wants to take another run at, at being 
a holy person or at being a person who is able to be happy, which is a hard feat to accomplish if you're really smart. And uh, (laughs) he wants to shut his brain up and try and be like that happy person who's a little more centered. And he literally makes predictions about how that will make his upcoming novels feel different than his previous novels. And I cannot wait to see if I agree or disagree. Yeah, me too. And like for the listeners, if they skip this one, I just want them to know that Kurt thinks every novel up to this point has been him working through trauma or being like his own therapist in some way. Yeah. And he expects every novel after Breakfast of Champions to be more detached, more about the craft of writing, more show, less tell, and more like dry. Yeah. And we'll see if that's true. I just think that's really interesting. To like keep in mind as we move forward. Yeah. And to also get that out of any author or creator, just for them to be in an interview like, okay, everything I did was A and now I'm going to do B. Here it comes. Right. It's yeah, thrilling. awesome. Like, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> yeah. If Hitchcock in the middle had been like, every movie up till now was about finding God. Now I'm atheist and every movie moving forward will be that. Yeah. You'd be like, I had to watch them all again. I didn't know that. That <laughs> right. changes everything. Yeah. The whole thing was yeah, about... Yeah. The economy like, uh, or something. I just something found out Insane Clown Posse's albums are all about finding God. And of course, now I have to listen to them all again. Is that for real? <laughs> <Yeah>. According <laughs> to John Cheese. Oh. <laughs> we'll see. <laughs> well, I think we can keep talking about this interview and talk about all the interviews by getting into another segment called Kurt Blurt. I want to blurt your words. No, a vampire. A blurt fire. Turn the lights back on. This is, if you've never heard the show before, this is a segment where we pull out particularly meaningful lines. If you've never heard the show before, we're vampires! (laughs) Also, that's canon. We are vampires. But this one is full of them, and I I thought that Playboy interview in particular, like, there's a lot of lines in the Playboy interview that are maybe better than entire chunks of the collection. Like, when he's talking about the space program, which he does that whole Excelsior segment about, there's just one part where he says that he's arguing that the space program is really more of an engineering thing than a science thing. And he says, it might as well have been an enormous skyscraper or a huge bridge or something like that, <laughs> yeah. which is a really funny way to describe the Apollo missions. So, to yeah. me. And this is sort of what the Kronos and Clastic Infidibulum is getting at, too, all throughout his work. Another thing about being really introspective and trying to navigate life and come to a cohesive sense of self, I think, is uh, the idea that we're always changing. We're always arriving at new truths and new and truths are true for different people at different times. And they're all true and seemingly contradictory things can be true. So in the Playboy interview, he says, you understand, of course, that everything I say is horseshit. After the Playboy interviewer calls him out on like two basic Kurdisms that have been true throughout his books contradict each other. Yeah. You know, like how can, like we said, you're all about diversity of thought and opening yourself up, but now your new book is about extended families who all think alike. And he's like, I don't know, whatever, don't listen to me. I don't know. (laughs) I just like that. And it also helps me with like some things we've found through the course of reading all these books and doing the show. Like when it's like, oh, what does he really think about free will? Kind of contradicts itself sometimes. And it helps you understand what FOMA mean to him. Yeah. He really means, and this is a struggle for me, and I actually think this podcast might be helping me with this. (laughs) As a very logical-minded cynic, it's hard to have faith in anything 
or come to any feeling of spirituality, no matter how badly you want that comfort. And Kurt is always trying to do that. He says in this, all my books are my effort to make myself like life better than I do. Yeah. And one of the main tools, I think, is FOMA. He's like... I know that there's things you can believe that even though they're not true, if you can believe them, it makes you happy. Right. Ooh, I'm going to try so hard to believe them. <laughs> and I, and I, I'm going to start trying that too, man. <laughs> we all can. Yeah. Bokanonism. There's also, a, a, if we go back to the preface, throughout this book, he talks about the process of writing. It's not the main focus very often, but there's one bit in the preface where he says, quote, this is what I find most encouraging about the writing trades. They allow mediocre people who are patient and industrious to revise their stupidity to edit themselves into something like intelligence. They also allow lunatics to seem saner than sane. Yeah, that's a good one. It's sort of a, it's sort of a Kilgore Trout mission statement, and uh, yeah. also just a good bit. Also in the preface, talking about how he thinks fiction gets at truth better than nonfiction, he says, fiction is melody and journalism new or old is noise. Yeah. And I don't think he's insulting journalism by saying it's noise. But it's a beautiful description of like fiction always involves conscious forming and journalism is supposed to be like, here's just all the stimulus that is coming in today. Right. Yeah. <laughs> just a good turn of phrase. I like it. Yeah. There's also when he's talking in the preface about Nixon, he says, Mr. Nixon himself is a minor character in this book. He is the first president to hate the American people and all they stand for. Yeah. Amazing <laughs> slam. Great. Really good. Um, <laughs> and then he also says about him, quote, he is a useful man in that he has shown us that our Constitution is a defective document, which makes a childlike assumption that we would never elect a president who disliked us so. Yeah. He's pointed out several key flaws in the Constitution throughout yeah, his career. He very really, well. Yeah, he really gets into it. I like, there's a quote that I retweet every time I see it. One of the fatal flaws in the Constitution is this. Only a crazy person would want to be the president. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and that's true. Do you have more preface ones? I'm out of I preface. I think that's about it. Yeah, Okay. Preface. Well, in the science fiction one, he describes Schenectady, New York as a town awkwardly set in the gruesome now. I want that oh. to be my tombstone. Oh, hey. He was awkwardly set in the gruesome now. Oh, I, no comment. That's a good pull for That's it. That's how I feel about life. <laughs> Someone note it down on yeah. rock. Right Make now. a note. Start chiseling now. <laughs> I look at in brief encounters on the inland waterway. There was one bit in it that jumped out to me where they stop and I think have lunch at a place where sailors eat. Mm -hmm. And he's talking about him. He says, "A room full of professional sailors <laughs> yeah. is a disconcerting thing to see. Nobody looks at anybody else. Everybody is scanning the horizon." Yeah. <laughs> really really cool character moment that was the one part of it where i was like i'm glad i'm reading this boat story although it yeah. also made me imagine a kids in the hall sketch where you just can't get eye contact with anyone or talk to anyone you're just trying to buy something right you're they're like, all like tripping and yeah right yeah. what's that on the horizon <laughs> i'm waving money in your face uh i'm at the herman hess one go for it oh okay there's two in the herman hess one i liked he's talking about how the hippie drug movement, he thought it could work, but he doesn't think now it's probably the answer. And uh, someone talking to him says, I think kids like Herman Hess because it involves some drugs. And it's true in passing, Hess characters do drugs, but it's never like the main theme of his books. And yeah. so uh, Vonnegut says back to him, Hess harmonizes well with the drug experience. And he says, I thought the best part of the drug experience was everything harmonizes with it. Everything except the police department. <laughs> it's just a good vaudeville line. Right. It's yeah. Very, yeah. Then the, they came then, in and beat the shit out of that guy. Yeah. He's writing <laughs> an essay, on. but you imagine the crowd is immediately like, it's like, oh, how drone. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and on a more serious tone, this resonated deeply with me in the same one. He says, 
I do not mock homesickness as a silly affliction that is soon outgrown. I never outgrew it, and neither did my father, and neither did Hess. I miss my mommy and daddy, and I always will, because they were so nice to me. Now and then, I would like to be a child again. It's all very simple language. Everyone feels that way. Yeah. Everyone is embarrassed to say that. It just takes balls to say that. <laughs> I yeah, think in yeah. a public forum. Right. Yeah. I, but yeah, it's like, yeah, you know everyone feels that way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and we're and we're so conditioned not to. Right. Yeah. Not or to mention not to say so. Yeah. Not to say that like you still think of yourself as a kid and you're you're nervous about how the world works. Right. But you always will be, just admit it. <laughs> That's how the world works. It's more complex than you can navigate. Yeah. You will one day die from that fact. Oh, man. <laughs> I mean, everybody else will, not me. Yeah, not, no, not Schmitty the clam, Ha-ha. obviously. You're just going to clam up and burrow Deathless. into the sand and yeah. hibernate. Yeah. That's how my species works. Uh, <laughs> there's one uh, in Oversext in Indianapolis, which is, you know, sort of a link to a book review. But there's one line where he says, I am suspicious of belly laughs as entirely happy experiences. The only way to get a belly laugh, I've found, is to undermine a surface joke with more unhappiness than most mortals can bear. So I'll just say one of my Vana what's now, because I have plenty for later, but... Let's, um, fold, let's fold it in. Let's fold, you in, want another, a let's fold in another segment called Vana what? Oh, what? no, uh, not ah, this segment. Oh. Sounded, oh. sounded very constipated, but Yeah, it's fun. <laughs> it really did. But, oh, I was just going to yeah, say... We're just folding it into blurts. We're doing it all right, right, but we better get back to blurts, because I got a couple more. But yeah. So that's what he says. But then his example from the book is a guy who's so depressed that he slits his wrists and rubs the blood all over his face and clothes. And then Vonnegut goes like, get it? Like, that gives you a real deep belly laugh. And I just went, Vonno, what? No, it doesn't. (laughs) What are you talking about? That's like your friend being like, have you seen Ichi the Killer? It's so funny. And you're like, what are you talking? (laughs) It's something. It's not funny. That was a weird example, Kurt Vonnegut. <laughs> yeah. I feel like I saw that line. I like wrote it down and was so fixated on that. I didn't really connect it to what he thinks was the best. He's laugh. not wrong that like yeah. dark humor gives you a different <laughs> kind right. of laugh. But that particular scene out of context has nothing funny about it. Nothing. Yeah. Ooh. <laughs> you were saying we can... before, though, let's stick with what's. Yeah. That you thought it was. And I agree. Because it's not fiction. Yeah. And because you don't have to wonder whether a character like being fucking overtly racist, how much is Vonnegut and how much is the character? Right. It's all him speaking as himself. It's pretty it's clean. Pretty, it's, pretty it's pretty good. Pretty, yeah. He's if a good, you, nice man, and it's good to find that out. <laughs> well, yeah. If you if you've never heard the show, Vanna Watts is where we talk about things that are maybe objectionable in the book, like whether or not sure. it's Kurt's perspective or or damning or you know just what could be. And I don't know. There's one bit where he calls a kind of firework an N-word chaser, and not like that. But I think that's just what a lot of people sure called it at the time. It. He yeah, didn't come yeah. up with it. And and other than that, it's it's pretty much just his opinions all laid out. And and there's not a lot of particularly offensive anything that I could find. And I really yeah. I'll rattle off some, but do it for fun. I like finding them. I don't really. <laughs> I love Kurt. I don't mean anything yeah. by it. But but also I will say I wanted to give him some snaps for. Ooh, uh, ooh. The one we were talking about, uh, in a manner that would shame God himself, I think is his best handling of racial strife ever to date that I've read. Oh, Because all he does is quote information he learned from the Native Americans. So I just love that he's there to ask questions humbly, and then he amplifies the voices of the people themselves, rather than just ranting on his opinions on 
the life of what it's like to be a black American. So it's a great, really, it's a great piece on race and it from Vonnegut and it shows you like how sensitive he can be. Yeah. But on the other hand, <laughs> here's some quotes. Mm-hmm. A boat to your average woman is just one more damn house to take care of. Only she has to walk six blocks to get groceries or get the laundry done. Because you take it for granted that she'll be doing the laundry naturally. Yeah, yeah I guess so. Yeah, these are minor. I'm yeah. telling you. I like yeah, digging yeah. for them, so I'll just rattle through them. This one actually does bug me a lot. When he talks about writing workshops, he invariably uses the pronoun she to describe any failed or silly person who's trying to write. And oh. he invariably uses the pronoun he to describe the hypothetical one writer who's serious about it and writes his head off all summer. And in that one, there's the a few quotes, but my favorite one is, most of the students are women. Several of them are preacher's wives in middle life. So it goes. And if you recall, so it goes is like what he says about the concentration camps and stuff. (laughs) I don't know. He just really depicts like silly middle-aged women trying to write is so pathetic in that one. And that bugged me. Similarly, in the murder one, he says, and women are so easy to kill, so weak and friendly, so fond of new people and places. (laughs) All right. (laughs) Um, Moving right along. In Biafra, People Betrayed. No chop, we said. That meant no food. That was what was said to beggars. Then a healthy girl offered us a quart of honey for three pounds. As I've already said, the economy was free enterprise to the end. Did you not, Alex, think very loudly in your head, buy the honey and give the honey to the guy that asked for, was begging for food? Um, Like, I just didn't understand why my protagonist was like eating a jar of honey in the middle of a famine. His whole approach to that trip i felt like he was trying to be like a fly on the wall but he should have just gone and done I mean, things like that right yeah. he talks about how my belly was always full of delicious food because i was a guest of the government but i didn't see how like giving away my food to the random beggars i saw would not save the country from starving and i'm like yeah but you, it would have been nice yeah, you still could that's have a good point yeah. you done, i don't know i watched three kings and i like how they're like Yeah, we could just take the money, but we're going to do something nice first. (laughs) We asked Rosemary, also in Biafra, we asked Rosemary's sister how long it took her to fix her hair and whether she could do it without assistance. I just have to point out of classic white guy stereotype. This is a young black girl they meet. Their first question is, can we touch your hair? What's the deal with your hair? You have neat hair. Yeah, he's fixated on the hair. Right, he doesn't yes. try to. Yeah. Um, so that is what it is. Yeah. He says it occurred to me to ask them if there was a chance one thing that had killed so many Biafrans was the arrogance of Biafra's intellectuals. I just really think that's really problematic phrasing. I don't know exactly what he means, but I don't think a country should stifle its intellectuals if it's trying to rise from any kind of poverty. Yeah, I guess. Yeah, I don't know what to make of that. I don't know. I, I he, didn't know what to make of. He it. does kind of argue that he sees Biafra as being like where most of the artists and intellectuals in Nigeria had moved to, and so it's right. sort of separate from the rest of the country. Oh, I see. And saying they yeah. didn't get involved enough with the effort yeah. of the local Biafrans. Okay, yeah. well, that's not a what if that's what he meant. Yeah. And then uh, in the last one from by the Biafra piece, which I actually think is the most damning. This is the whole only thing in the whole book that truly disappoints me. He says, I find that I have betrayed my promise to speak of the greatness rather than the pitifulness of the Biafran people. And he's right. He did. Because at the top of the piece, he says, it sucks to only talk about Africans as victims starving in a gutter because then that becomes your permanent image of Africans. We should be dispensing positive images of how they're just as great as you and have so much to contribute to society if we would nurture them and allow them to reach 
adulthood. And he's right. That is what you should do. Then all he talks about is starving Africans and a person who lights themselves on fire because they're so hungry. And then at the end of the story, he says, damn, I was supposed to talk more about how great they are. I only talked about all the starving people. Oh, well, end of essay. Dude, go back and fix it. So I just take issue with recognizing a flaw in your essay and then just at the end of the essay writing, oh, P.S., I shouldn't, I should fix this, but I'm not going to. Yeah, I guess it's it's sort of like his yeah it's sort of like a self criticism of making Kilgore Trout somebody who only wrote one female protagonist ever and they were a rabbit and but that was did, my exact same reaction yeah. is like then fix it if you're aware yeah okay that's a good call. and then to lighten it up before we get out of the what's in one of the speeches I'm not going to give any context the quote is still I will give you what goo I have left. <laughs> That's how I end every conversation. Quote, end quote. Is that weird? No, that yeah, no. I have nothing to say about it. Okay, good. It's my favorite Kurt quote ever. Cool. Yeah. Well, I got plenty more goo. Let's well, great. All right. <laughs> let's keep spilling out the goo. In a little segment we call... Blurt's Part 2. Blurt's Part 2. Revenge of the Blurt. First Mal. Blurt. Blurt 2. Maul. <laughs> Maul harder. It's about a bear mauling Paul Blurt. Even harder. (laughs) Poor poor Paul Blurt. What do you got for good blurts? So again, listeners, we're back to things we like that Kurt said. (laughs) (laughs) It's improvisational, guys. We go segment to segment. There is one line toward the end of the Biafra piece. He says, it is probably true that all nations are great and even holy at the time of death. And I don't know. Mm. There was an interesting vibe to that. Uh, That was a cool, like, when everything's coming apart, it has some kind of drama to it. Yes. In Oversexton, Indiana, he says, Every book is a period piece now, since years or even weeks in America no longer resemble each other at all. I think that's so true and cool. Like the rate yeah. of change in American culture is constantly accelerating. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And totally, and it gets true and true. I couldn't not think of the Ben Fold song, Bastard. Kids getting nostalgic about the last 10 years for the last 10 years have passed. <laughs> And any line that makes me think of a Ben Fold song, I include in the blurts. Okay, you do know it. Good. I'm up to the speech where there's the Shakespeare quote, graduating class at Bennington College, where he quotes Henry the the Sixth, part three. Please do. The quote is, to weep is make less the depth of grief. Which, if I'm interpreting it right, is super depressing. It's that if you cry, I, I interpret it as if you cry, it makes your... It makes you feel better. Yeah. But I think he's saying, therefore, you shouldn't cry. You should just experience how... Full oh, of grief yeah. you are like fully fully living it you know what make it easier yeah. that's my i'm adding that to that because he doesn't say that necessarily i don't know i'm just yeah, being I a think downer go either way yeah. yeah he says he thinks that should be the class motto right but it's telling <laughs> to me that in the biafra piece he says it's the fucking saddest thing i've ever seen i only cried about it one time for about 90 seconds so i think he does have a belief that like crying is presentational crying is just to make you feel better crying yeah. doesn't help anyone so, like, why cry about the grief? Do something about the grief. Yeah, that's a good one. Yeah. He says, uh, if we are to discuss truthfully what America is and what it can become, our discussion must be an absolutely rotten taste or we won't be discussing it at all. That's basically him say- or when he's talking about how great Hunter is and the whole new movement of, like, you know, when I was a kid, we didn't say boobs in, like, our short stories. <laughs> I like that now a short story will be, like, Fuck the A bomb. I whipped my pussy out. Like, you know what I mean? But his point being, like, you can't change reality unless you're going to talk in your writing about every aspect of reality, whatever you're talking about. Right. And so I, I appreciate that. He likes that literature is becoming dirtier and rawer 
he's like super down with Kerouac and Ginsburg and Thompson and all that stuff. That's cool. Yeah, because politeness stops us from getting it. So exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And another one of the uh, that Bennington address, he says, "A great swindle of our time is the assumption that science has made religion obsolete." All science is damaged is the story of Adam and Eve and the story of Jonah and the whale. Everything else holds up pretty well, particularly the lessons about fairness and gentleness. Although, from that same speech, (laughs) I don't know how clearer you can get and uh, how more directly depressing you could get. um, In that speech, he says, My wife begged me to bring you light tonight, but there is no light. Everything is going to become unimaginably worse, and it will never get better again. (laughs) If I lied to you about that, you would sense that I had lied to you, and that would be another cause for gloom. Yeah, pretty raw. Yeah, and I don't disagree sometimes. (laughs) I don't know what to say about that. And then he said, let's go Bennington Bulldogs! (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Bennington High School football rules! (laughs) Seniors 2010! He's like, you in the third row, you're cute, you free tonight? You got more? I got three more. Uh, I think I have two more. Okay. You go ahead. All right. So yeah, so we'll do it that way. I have two from the Playboy interview, one from the Playboy interview. I'm not very grateful for Darwin, although I suspect he was right. And that gets at the same dichotomy that we've been hitting at, I think, again and again. Like, the evidence seems to show that the Earth is a pitiless place of getting eaten alive <laughs> And it's just chaos of who survives and doesn't. And Mother Nature don't give a fuck about your comfort or human dignity or anything. Yeah. And he's like, the evidence seems to point that way. So at the same time that I'm like, wow, Darwin was so smart to realize all this stuff. I hate it. (laughs) Like, man, I don't want that to be true. Yeah. Yeah, that's all. (laughs) Really gets at that dichotomy. Yeah, yeah. I'm not very grateful for Darwin. It's awesome. Yeah. Well, yeah, kind of along with that. In the address to the National Institute of Arts and Letters, he's talking about what he learned at University of Chicago about folk societies. And he says, And I say to you that we are all full of chemicals which require us to belong to folk societies, or failing that, to feel lousy all the time. We are chemically engineered to live in folk societies, just as fish are chemically engineered to live in clean water. And there aren't any folk societies for us anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And then he says, Oh, and yeah, and you're seeing a lot of political activity from young people now. But, you know, when you take a fish out of water, it flops around for a while. <laughs> That's right, like, right, oh, right. burn, hippies. Yeah. Jesus. Yeah. But, and also that, like, <laughs> like when you see society seeming crazier and more loud and violent and so He's on, like, it's like a be, fish flopping yeah. around out of water. Like, it's a sign of trouble. Of like suffering. It's a problem. Extreme suffering. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Oh, oh, actually, yeah. For my second one, I want to go back to the Biafra piece. There, George Washington, so to speak, General Ojukwu, who is the head of the short-lived Biafran state, said or is quoted as saying something so inspirational, I immediately shed a single tear. And and Kurt also (laughs) says, like, this guy totally sold me. Like, I was totally on board with the ideals of Biafra. And he says, if we go forward, we die. If we go backward, we die. So... We go forward. Yeah, How pretty, is that not hardcore. like on every bookmark and shitty hoodie of like every college graduate? Like Churchill Bennington said. Bulldogs, we go forward. <laughs> well, you just see the quote all the time. Never, never, ever, ever, ever give up. Winston Churchill. Right. Fuck that. This is, if <laughs> we go better. forward, we die. If we go backward, we die. So we go forward. That's just so the baddest ass thing I've ever heard. Yeah. yeah. So metal. Yeah. So awesome. <laughs> 
I think my last one, it's from Manor that Mushave got himself when he's at the Republican convention. He's talking about, well, at one point he calls it Disneyland under martial law because it's in Miami Beach, but it's all like heavily cordoned off by police and there's protesters outside. But he talks about how there's become a situation where anytime there's protesters, police are sent. And his quote is, when more than two people show up with a humanitarian idea, the police should be called is people's Pavlovian response to yeah. protests. He says it's become a Pavlovian response to just, yeah, you don't want to feel bad about the bad things your class does. So you're like, police, take this away out of my sight. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Which is, it was true then, true now, true before. Yes. Like you see it all the time. And uh, in this book, he says one of his favorite people of all times, George Orwell, who famously said, Oh, and he has a quote in here where he says, not doing anything is also cruel. And George Orwell said, all you have to do to commit evil is stand by and do nothing. So he's definitely hammering that home. Like, he's not saying capitalists in America want to, like, drink the blood of your children. He's saying all they have to do is ignore your starving children in the street. That's evil, too. Like, they don't have to be shooting at you directly. And sometimes they are shooting at you directly. (laughs) (laughs) So last quote I wanted to feature from the Playboy interview. And I am going to ask for indulgence and have Brett play another song here. But it's... So the question is, you want to be with people who live nearby and think exactly as you do? I referenced this earlier, but the exact quote is, no, that isn't primitive enough. I want to be with people who don't think at all, so I don't have to think either. I'm very tired of thinking. It doesn't seem to help very much. The human brain is too high-powered to have many practical uses in this particular universe, in my opinion. I would like to live with alligators and think like an alligator. And they say, well, could this be from the fatigue of having just finished Breakfast of Champions? No. (laughs) As if to say, no, I'm sure of this. I've arrived at this conclusion. And uh, it immediately reminded me of not one of my favorite songs of all time, but I think some of the best lyrics of all time, Bright Eyes' I Believe in Symmetry. And uh, we'll play a chunk here that's basically an ode to wishing you could be a bee because bees, A, don't know they're going to die. All they want to do is fuck the flower and (laughs) clearly have no problem with death because, like, they'll sting you and die. They don't care. And, like, just how nice would it be to not think about some of the big things we all have to think about all the time? Yeah, good solid hive mentality. Yeah, Really relaxing. You just work for the hive, man. Yeah. An argument for consciousness The instinct of the blind insect who makes love to the flower bed and dies in the first freeze. Oh, I want to and we're back. <laughs> and I think we can play ourselves into another segment. There are a lot of segments we'd normally do that we kind of skip in an essay collection situation. Yeah. But we can go into a segment here called yeah. the, the Nude Oil. Oh, sorry. I was going to say the Nude Oil Wrestling. We'll skip right past. We usually <laughs> do yeah, it, usually, but, but right. not the meat. Get physical. Here comes the meat. Chop, Let's chop, chop, get chop, physical. Meteor. Let's meet meteors up in space. <laughs> now it's space. I'm just free associate, man. <laughs> Why um, is a moon rock tastier than an earth rock? Because it's a it's little meteor. Uh, <laughs> Futurama joke. <laughs> this, okay. is, uh, this is a segment where we get into any meanings from the book that we didn't get into before. We've usually gotten into many of them, and I think we have already. Is there anything you want to dive into as far as this collection? I honestly ground up all my meat and sprayed it willy-nilly over the rest of the episode this time. I kind of did, too. I wrote a whole two paragraphs of meat 
And uh, we've hit every every point. I would just be repeating myself. Yeah, actually, yeah, we hit the slapstick connection. We had a breakfast champion. Yeah, I think we kind of meet it. All right, let's Great choke job. that meat back down. <laughs> <laughs> um, and we can go straight into a next segment called Kurt Vonnegrades. Vonnegrades. What am I gonna get in this class? Kurt. What am I gonna get in Indianapolis. So in uh, in his book, Palm Sunday, which we mentioned before, is also an essay collection, he grades himself relative to himself. And this book, he gave a C, which is the same grade he gave to Palm Sunday, Southern Essay Collection. Which... That's his book about masturbating in church, right? I haven't read that one. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. Uh-huh. Uh, sort of an autobiography, but essays is great. <laughs> uh, and then he also gave a C to Breakfast of Champions, which, as we said on that episode, is, is maybe his best book. Yeah, that's bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> But this, yeah, I'll give this a C. <laughs> yeah, I think... I, I'm, I'm bad with essays, like I said. I'm dumb and I only like fanciful imagination things. So even though it's all great, I knock it down a grade because there's no aliens in it. Yeah, I think it's... Yeah, when it's also... like Especially knowing the origin of it, that it sort of happened by accident. Like, I feel like it is a much more cohesive and interesting piece of work than he would expect for it just being odds and ends that professors brought him. Yes, know? it is. And I'm super glad I read uh, it. And Especially read because it. it's like director's commentary on Breakfast of Champions in yeah. some places. But I do I do think I would give it like probably about a B minus because it's got a lot of really crystalline Kurt ideas and concepts in it. But also it's still not on the level of one of his novels where he nails it. Yeah, or yeah. it's just like easier because it's, it's a, just easier. To he do. already yeah. had him lying around, and you someone else put him together. See, I'm more convinced. C plus, C, C plus. All right, yeah. We're going down. Slowly. I was gonna go up to a C plus, so we'll both we'll land at C plus. We'll both go to C plus and we'll happily sit there. You're like typing it in. All right, I actually so spreadsheet. Yeah, really. Yeah, spreadsheet. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's great. never gonna matter to anyone. <laughs> <laughs> Everything matters. It all, all right. happens. Okay. Yeah, those are the amount of grades. And now let's go into a next segment called related reading. Read, 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 we will read, read, choke read, read. their rivers read, read, read. with our books. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> They'll be too wet to read. This is a segment where it, we recommend just other good writing that we feel connects to the book or reminds us of it, or we mm. just dig, man. Yeah, and I only have one, so I'll fire it out of the cannon into yeah. your ear. Sherman <laughs> Alexi, The Absolutely True Diary of a Part-Time Indian, which is was oh, his cool. breakout book. Yeah. Read it? Heard of him? Heard I, of it? I read it a long time ago. I don't sure. remember it very well. It's excellent. It's yeah. it's a number of one-off short stories that just elucidate life uh, in the growing up in the reservation system in America. And it's really well written and has like a lot of great raw honesty. Very funny and wry like Kurt. And of course, I was reminded of it by uh, uh, the... In a manner that would shame God's story, just totally made me want to reread it. I went back and started rereading it. I read the first two stories again last night, and it's dope. It's really fun and great. So awesome. I was like, oh, I remember it from high school being good, and it's still super good. So that's yeah. Sherman Alexi, the absolutely true diary of a part-time Indian. That's a short story pick. collection. Really good. Yeah. Yeah, and opinions and, and yeah. Yeah. Yeah, I have I think I have two for this and they're both graduation speeches because Kurt does a lot of them in this yeah. and, and also I my own personal college graduation had an awful speaker. Very, very bad. And so from then on I was like seeking better speeches in life, you know? And so my two favorites, one of them is super relevant to Kurt. It's a speech called Wear Sunscreen and it's by <laughs> Mary Schmitch 
who was a Chicago oh, Tribune don't, columnist. Don't you mean it's by Kurt Vonnegut? <laughs> what? And so a legend grew around this on the internet because uh, Mary Schmidt wrote this for her column in the Tribune. Not not related. No, nah, uh, it's Vonnegut, man. Schmidt, Schmidt. Uh, <laughs> so she wrote it because she said, hey, no one's ever invited me to do a graduation speech, but this is what I would do. And it became a smash hit column like it was then printed as a mm-hmm. book on its own stuff and then the internet started passing around the text of it as a speech by kurt vonnegut also became sent. a popular bookmark for graduating college seniors i'm telling you i saw that quote bookmark frequently. oh wear sunscreen and... yeah the whole yeah, speech yeah, the printed whole out on a bookmark yeah that was <laughs> a popular the, gift carry it around like a pole no like, they print know. it tiny <laughs> you you gotta know how this works alex <laughs> they, i've never been outside of the, the studio. font gets smaller but a, a, the internet decided it was a speech Kurt gave at MIT, and he has never given a speech at MIT. And he was asked about it and said, "There, you know, it's a great speech, and I wish I had given something like that. But it, cool. it's a really wonderful piece of speaking. It is. It's advice. a lovely speech. Yeah. And uh, the whole album is actually good. Baz Luhrmann, who did, you know, Romeo plus Juliet and uh, Moulin Rouge and Oz and all that, it's his album. He Before all that, he did a, a, an album of music among which was that song with the speech. But it has a great bunch of... There's like amazing what? remixes on that album. That whole album's good. I yeah. don't understand. Look up Baz Luhrmann's first album. What? Like what? He did a, he... <laughs> Okay, wait. Let's take it back a step. You're aware that this speech was made into a hit song, right? No. Okay. <laughs> I was so lost. This speech was made into a hugely successful song that played on VH1 fucking nonstop. Oh, I had no idea. Pop-up video had the factoid that's like, you think this is written by Kurt Vonnegut, but it's not. <laughs> yeah, you got to hear that song, man. I, I was like, this was is a bit a I do song. not track at all. Well, anyway, this is a very while we're at it, bit. I'm going to recommend the whole album that song is from. It's super dorky and fun. It's wow. a great album. Weird. By Baz Luhrmann, who usually directs movies. Yeah, I only knew him as a movie director. I was (laughs) so lost. And then the other speech I'd pick out is called This Is Water. And it was a David Foster Wallace speech that he gave at Kenyon College. And I know it as audio. I think you can find it around. And it's a really, really amazing graduation speech. And in particular, there's that one line that I blurted about Kurt saying that we need folk societies like fish need water. And he Mm. has his own water metaphors about uh, using an old joke about fish where they they can't see the water because they just live in it. Mm -hmm. And so we're sort of like that with, you know, people's problems around us and things like that. Nice. Yeah. Really wonderful speech. That's great. I need more Wallace in my life. Yeah. Is that all? I think that's all for this basic related related reading. Oh, well, then let me ramp us right into a new unprecedented segment. Whoa, the table's taking off. Kurt Vonnegut's personal library of related recommended things for you to read. Kurt Vonnegut's personal library. Kurt recommends them to us. We recommend Kurt to you. It's Kurt's recommendations to you. So, because this is be so long in the episode description, of course, <laughs> it'll be great. Because this is a book, a collection of nonfiction and essays and book reports and reviews. Yeah, Kurt has an unprecedented number of recommendations for you. So these are books which most of which I've never read, mm. but I wanted to isolate them from this book in case people trust Kurt Vonnegut so much, like me, that they're like, "Well, I'm going to read it in the future." Yeah. So just little blurbs on each of each of Kurt's things. And uh, I'm just going to go through real quick. because yeah, he's picking out novels in this. Yeah, he recommends The Spoon River Anthology by Edgar Lee Masters. 
Written in 1915, a collection of short free verse poems that collectively narrates the epitaphs of the residents of Spoon River. And it sounds very Whitman. I've never read it. From what I could glean on Wikipedia, it's sort of, it's like, yeah, it's a long poem, but yeah, like yeah, Porgy yeah. and Bess style. It makes you understand what life is like in Midwest America. Yeah, or like Carl Sandburg or something. Exactly. Or like something like that, yeah. USA by John Dos Passos, which I'm shocked I hadn't heard of because when I looked it up, apparently it's like continuously named as one of the best novels of all time and i'm really dumb and unsophisticated for not having heard of it yeah me both yeah it comprises three novels the 42nd parallel 1919 and the big money and Mm. now i haven't heard of any of them separately either all right well it employs a a bunch of highly experimental narrative techniques and covers the entire assorted history of the united states it's considered classic i guess interesting john dos passos p-a-s-s-o-s yeah he says, is this, "Is this just going to be a segment where it turns out we haven't read anything?" That would, I think that so. Would be rough. <laughs> he says, "He says uh, in this, but it's okay because Kurt says he just read Madame Bovary for the first time at age forty-seven, and it oh, was good." Yeah. He's like, "I heard it was good. It is. It is pretty good. I haven't read it, so read it, also yeah. you have in school. Yeah, it was nice. Good. Yeah, I didn't. It's winter." But apparently, it's a book by Gustave Flaubert about a doctor's wife, Emma Bovary, who has adulterous affairs and lives beyond her means to escape the banalities and emptiness of provincial life. But the main reason you would want to read it is it's considered the first thoroughly modern narrative fiction novel that established all the tropes that we now just call like third-person omniscient standard prose. Yeah, that was how it was presented to us in school. It was like, oh, this this came up with a lot of the yeah. format. Like it says in Kane, sort of. Like yeah. it's almost like the first book that says, he said this, then she said this. They walked yeah, yeah. together to a new location. It's yeah. like the quote I found was, this book established, for better or worse, what most readers think of as, as narration. Books. Yeah. <laughs> and the influence of this book is so complete as to be almost invisible. Like you can't tell what's unique about it because every book is written in that style now, period. Yeah. That's cool. So that's cool. The Shakespeare play he recommends, King Henry the Sixth, Part Three, which mm. he says is his favorite Shakespeare play. All I'll do to describe it is basically it's Return of the Jedi. Yeah, I haven't read that either. All right. Yeah. You haven't read Return of the Jedi? Oh, yeah. <laughs> <It's>, uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> he wrote a trilogy about the War of the Roses. It's actually a, qu- a quatrology, if you count one play that's technically like an epilogue to it. Yeah. But it was his Shakespeare's first big financial hit. And it's all killer, no filler action movie plays, basically, about when the kings slaughtered that king and they fought back and forth. And Henry VI Part Three is the fucking, like, fate of the furious one it's the one where he's like all the payoffs all the battles everything that was built up in you know empire is now paying off this is return of the jedi it's the big payoff episode it's really awesome it has more battles than any other shakespeare play more deaths than any other shakespeare play and the longest single monologue of any shakespeare play Wow. So it's just yeah. like the, like, ugh, like pulling out all the stops. <laughs> Shakespeare on steroids. Yeah, I, I'm behind on the histories. I haven't read many of those. And last but not yeah. least, this will make us feel good. Hunter S. Thompson's Fear and Loathing in Las Vegas, A Savage Journey to the Heart of the American Dream. I'm sure you've read. I actually have not read it. Wow. How yeah. embarrassing and pathetic. <laughs> I This segment was rough for me. Oh, boy. <laughs> uh, a teacher handed it to me first period one day in high school, and I skipped a day of school. It's the only time I've ever skipped a day of school and read it in a single sitting. Yeah. It's fucking awesome roller coaster ride of mind-blowing trippiness oh. and truth and punk rock. 
not that he listens to punk rock, but I just mean a <laughs> fuck you to the world attitude. But like, fuck you because because why are you such an evil bastard? Not mm. fuck you, let's burn it all down. Fuck you. Fuck you, you capitalist pig. That kind of attitude. Yeah. You know what Hunter S. Thompson's attitude is like. This is the breakthrough book that started it all. And it is not overrated. It fucking rules. <laughs> cool. Fear and yeah. loathing is great. And it's very vonnegut because it also is intimately tied to the illustrator, Ralph Steadman, did a series of illustrations for it that you could not remove from it. I mean, they make the book. Right, like he'll draw Breakfast of Champions. Definitely. Yeah. And if even if you've seen the movie, read the book, just like One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest, it's like a totally different experience. Both are good. Okay, cool. Yeah, Kurt has a lot of recs for you guys. Yeah. And, and us. Hopefully by the time we're 50 and on our deathbeds, we will have read these nine books. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, when we run out of Kurt Vonnegut. Exactly. We'll, you know, do everything else. Oh, if we do, if we continue this as just a general book club, I would definitely love to do Siddhartha or Madame Bovary or Fear and Loathing would even be fun. Oh, yeah. Those yeah, those would be cool. Yeah, there's yeah. some good ones in here. Yeah, I've actually, I've read a lot of Hess. I could probably do a whole thing about that. I've only read Siddhartha. Reading this really made me want to read Steppenwolf, definitely. My favorites are Siddhartha and also one called The Glass Bead Game, Don't which even is know a really crazy. It's oh, Mancala. Like... I call her Mancala. <laughs> It's like he. It's like he's trying to figure out what writing should be after he's already written a bunch of books. Mm, it's mm. it's very it's very meta and also like a few kind of a future sci-fi story, but not in a over the top way where there's like lasers in space or anything. It's just like oh, a future oh, society <laughs> where people have figured out created like a unified field theory of all science and academics into one game, and it's like kind of predicting uh, game theory and it's nice. crazy. Yeah. Do you know if game theory, like legitimate game theory, just coming into existence at that time? Or? I don't really know. It's not. I that's probably not a great comparison. Oh, that okay. I made. Sure, like it's sure, not sure, quite sure. that direct, but it's it's an interesting thing. Like the idea of games teaching us things about how the world works. Oh, like yeah. gamification. Yeah. Yeah. Totally. Yeah. So this is a very literary episode, and I also think we can go into another segment called Vonnegut News. It's our most stable theme song by far. Really, yeah, news is very uh, staid. That's oh, really we all is. we all know what Apple Loop people expect to hear when you're going to parody <laughs> the news. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> and yeah. There's a couple new things. Uh, one is that the Kurt Vonnegut museum and library uh they're working on they had done a kickstarter for a new space mm -hmm. and they've run into some trouble with the new space they picked out uh because <gasps> there was a chronos like... and classic infidibulum in it <laughs> right uh -huh. a dog and a guy kept showing yeah. up yeah there were apparently structural issues with it and so they ran a dispute with the people who owned it and so we're just wishing them luck with figuring that out but they aren't going to move as quickly as they plan to we asked if there was any way the listeners could help if someone if you wanted to throw a buck or two their way and they said no yeah so, so just send them just happy an thoughts. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they're and they're doing a year of Vonnegut thing, so look out for events with that and check nice. that out. And then one thing that is going on with that year of Vonnegut is that you can go visit Kurt Vonnegut's childhood home on the north side of Indianapolis. It's open until May 14th, so it's a short window for you to check it out. Yeah. Then but they the will be burning it down, so make sure you don't miss that. <laughs> We need fuel. Um, on the on the plus side, I hear the uh, Costco chicken bakes they're going to serve there will be excellent. <laughs> just roasting them. <laughs> yeah, yeah. They're just going to eat chicken monsters. bakes over the bones of Vonnegut's house. <laughs> and then there's also a Kickstarter that's been going on for a documentary called Kurt Vonnegut Unstuck in Time. 
made by Robert Whitey, who we've talked about before. Oh. He produced the Mother Night movie. He produced and directed episodes of Curb Your Enthusiasm. Yeah. He's a longtime Vonnegut fan and chronicler. And they say that the Kickstarter's gone well and the movie's gone well. And they're going to hope to put have a finished movie by the fall of 2017 to put into festivals and release by the first half of 2018. So oh. hopefully there will be a great new documentary about Kurt Vonnegut. Or you can unstick yourself in time and see it now. <laughs> right. Or right. go yeah. look at it and yeah. tell us about it. And yeah, and speaking of looking at things of Kurt, this is news that we're repeating, but there is a play version of Sirens of Titan in Los Angeles. It closes May 6th, and we're going to check it out very soon, hopefully. We will. And then also in San Francisco, there's a production of Mother Night going on that you can see at Custom Made Theater in May and June. So, awesome. so much Vana Theater. Wow. It's great. Yeah. And then one other live event to announce that we've mentioned before, but we are doing a live episode of the show. Holy. We're coming to the world. Crab butt. We're unstuck from the studio. <laughs> We're going to come to you. It's to May. Studio. Yeah. To <laughs> studio. <laughs> so much music in this uh-huh. May 31st. 7.30 p.m. at the last bookstore, which is a bookstore in downtown L.A. We're not just declaring something. It is the last bookstore. Of all bookstores. Yeah. And they will uh, be burning it down afterwards. But it's got to be a free show, and we're talking about Palm Sunday, which mm-hmm. is uh, another collection like this one, but you yeah. get all into Kurt's life. And it'll be really great, I think. Yeah. Come hang out with us for free. Anyone who comes is welcome to co-host or interject anything at any time. I know. That's how we're running it, right? No, oh, okay. no, definitely not. I'm, oh, okay. So it's going to be like a Gestapo situation. Uh, I figured it would be just me monologuing. Just you. Oh, uh, and I'm just what? Over uh, here building model airplanes, jerking off? Yeah, if you want to do that. That sounds you know? good to me, man. That sounds fun. That sounds great. It's a chill night, yeah. I mean, can you get me like a Tomcat 727 model? Uh, yeah, I just send have, me. Yeah, just some. Just some, send me whatever links to your nerd stuff you like want to do. Like some good man. sniffing glue, <laughs> and we're set. <laughs> no, it'll be both yeah. of us. It'll be great. It'll be a good time. Oh, okay. Uh, come hang out. <laughs> and I think that's all for this book. Is there anything else you wanted to throw in or add about Wampeter's Foma? And Grandfluence, the wonderful... Just that it's still pronounced Wampeters, Alex. Mm, we'll see. Pr- right. It probably is. Yeah, I'm okay. usually wrong. <laughs> uh, and then our next episode is going to be about the next book chronologically, which is a novel called Slapstick, released in 1976. Bicentennial. So there you one. go. And yeah, excellent novel that I'm very excited for us to get yeah, into. Yeah, I'm excited for this. And for you folks to get into, too. And in the meantime, thank you so much for listening, and uh, we'll catch you next time. And if this isn't nice, I don't know what it is.